just a good old boy Never meaning no harm Beats all you never saw Been in trouble with the law since the day they was born Good old boys I'm Mark Bog Beef Today we've got Claudius back How are you doing sir? I'm doing good How are you doing today? Doing good. Uh, we need to uh, talk credentials here. So uh, uh, <laughs> I'm sure we laid about before, but we got more credentials here. Do you, do you speak Greek and Latin? Depends what you mean by speak. Uh, ancient Greek, not really. Uh, classical Latin, I can hold a primitive halting conversation with the few people who actually do speak it fluently. Uh, you can count those people on, I don't know, your hands and your feet, maybe worldwide, maybe a little more than that. I'm not one of them, but I can follow them if they speak slowly enough and I can. Uh, kind of hold my own in the conversation with a pretty simple vocabulary. Based, uh, you know, all this, we, a, lot of, a lot of people talk about elite and all this kind of stuff. So first off, the, the you must be this high to ride for elite. <laughs> it, has to, it has to start with Greek and Latin. You need, you, you must have this. Yes, although once someone did uh, take me into a, a university building and pointed up to an inscription on the wall and I kind of squinted and he said, this is Sanskrit. This is how we separate the men from the boys. And uh, under under that standard, I'm, I'm I can't hang with with the Sanskrit, but I'll hang with the Greek and Latin and and Aramaic. Yeah, your, your manager your manager will speak Aramaic too. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you have some very interesting topics to talk about here today, and one of them is 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 uh, one of my favorites. It's, it's a little bit uh, philosophical. I don't I don't know if you want to jump to that one, but uh, you. This this idea of how large political change happens, right? Sure, absolutely. So the uh, the French are on, I think, their fifth republic, right? They're very open about it that they've had to hit Control Alt Delete four times in their you know the, the republic democracy, whatever you want to call it. Uh, normally, that happens because either they lose a, a catastrophic war or they have a you know, social collapse at home or both, you know, often the first cause is the second. But we we don't do that here. So and, and this is not my theory. This is a theory of a Yale law professor named Bruce Ackerman came up with a theory of what he calls a constitutional moment. And so his idea is in the United States, we also do kind of the same thing, just not unofficially. And so we're on, depending on how you count, our third, our fourth, maybe our fifth republic, uh, but we just don't actually hang out a new sign saying, okay, this is mm -hmm. version 2.0. And, and he came up with the whole theory of how these big transformational moments happen. I mean, I could see, uh, I think fa pretty famously, Yarvin said that this is the fourth republic because he mm -hmm. counted the... He counted the Articles of Confederation. I don't think I would really count the Articles of Confederation government as the first iteration, really. Really, I think the, the Republic the Republic era that ended in 1865, and then I don't know what what the era that came between 65 and 1930 and 1932 was called, but I think he's pretty correct with those lines of demarcation. We are definitely at least on the third version of the United States, and and, and each iteration has gotten progressively worse. You got you got to be four, right? So mm, you have the beginning, you have Reconstruction, you have FDR, and then you have Civil Rights. Oh yeah, that's actually a really mm, and, okay. And that's basically this professor's model. So he started writing these you know books about it in the eighties, 
And part of his agenda, I think, was to kind of prove that Reagan was not going to be able to pull it off and that, you know, he was reacting against Reagan's presidency and saying, "Ah, under this theory I'm constructing, you're close but no cigar. And so he he originally identified, he says, uh, the revolution. Well, he he talks actually about the English Civil War and the um, uh, deposition and execution of the king. He actually gives that as his first example, I guess, in the Anglo-American tradition. But he really starts with the revolution, the Civil War and Reconstruction, and FDR. And there was a reaction from sort of other academics and others saying, well, what about civil rights? And he wrote a third volume kind of, which took him a long time to come out with, where he had to retcon his theory a little. Because, and, and when we get into what the theory is, it'll be obvious why he had to kind of tinker with it, arguably, to, to make the civil rights era fit. But so his basic model is you have regular political time when kind of people follow the rules and the structure. And then you have these moments where, where you a constitutional moment, I think, as he called it, where you're hitting control out delete. And, and my version of the formula, anybody who's interested, you go check out you know, him online, Bruce Ackerman or, or read his books. Uh, but my version of it down and dirty is you break the rules very visibly publicly, you kind of admit that you're breaking the rules because of a higher necessity. And the defenders of the status quo say, hey, you can't do that. That's against the rules. And then you sort of you summon the people to come out in their numbers and give you even bigger majorities or give you that reelect. Or for FDR, it would be going for the third and then the fourth election and getting putting up numbers. FDR is probably the cleanest example of that, where it's the most obvious in the FDR and the New Deal uh, that they are going way, coloring way outside the pre-existing lines and just dunking on and just running over people who make procedural or traditional objections to that, getting the numbers and the bodies to just vote in massive, massive. I mean, I think there were something like 12 Republican senators left after after one of FDR's midterms or something like that. I mean, just putting up humiliating numbers. And then when the dust settles, you've changed what the new rules are. Does that jibe with how you all think about how these things happen? Now, this is short of a complete collapse and a complete separation into two people. This is how you're still maintaining some continuity of the same society, country, government, whatever, but it really is 2.0, 3.0. Yeah. What about <clears throat> Andrew Jackson just literally, uh, you know, telling the Supreme Court and stuff it's like, well, you know, just stop me. You can't because everyone's, <laughs> everyone supports me and we've, we've, um, yeah, it supports me in a, in a way that wasn't even possible, you know, 20 years before. That's an excellent point. And I think that this version, the, the version of this professor's books, you know, he's uh, uh, Scalia once said he used this phrase, Justice Scalia, when he was talking about looking at other countries laws or so-called international law to inform ours. I think he said that was like looking at a crowd and picking out your friends. And there's some of that going on here where when he tells his narrative, it's based around his heroes, Lincoln and FDR. Uh, they're the ones that successfully pulled it off. But there could be a, a good old boys version of this thero theory that would focus more on Andrew Jackson. Uh, but then and I don't know, you know, maybe Donald Trump. Right. I mean, I, I don't know if, uh, if 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 Reagan pulls off a true transformation under either of these views uh, as, as central as he is to the last couple decades of how we think about these things and people still invoke his name all the time. Was he really transformative in the same sense? 
the libs like to pretend that, that he was. I don't know. I, I I used to buy this back before Trump because like Reagan was kind of the big villain before Donald Trump. Like no, even even George W. Bush, even as much as he was hated, like they kind of agreed that the Reagan. Uh, he's not he's not Reagan bad. He's not that bad. Uh, I, I at this point now it feels like Reagan was like a caretaker, the the last New Deal president. He didn't really. It, Here's a guy who, who comes in with with one of these, like you just described, incredible, like absolute electoral ass kickings. And what does he do with it? He lowers taxes, increases immigration, does immigration amnesty. Yeah, I'm not I'm not buying that he was some kind of bans automatic weapons. Yeah, yeah. It's like if you look at his accomplishments, <laughs> they were they were you know they were awful. He, so yeah, I don't I don't think he was any kind of revolutionary figure. But you know this 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 is a good theory. You know it explains this thing. Um, anytime anyone gets elected now, you know you get elected fifty two forty eight. You you claim you have the um the, the mandate yeah. the the mandate. You know, and it's 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 hilarious. Like you know when I was uh, younger, I didn't know much about history and politics. So I was like, oh, it's the mandate. They should just call it the mandate of heaven because that's what they're mm. trying to claim. Uh, and you know, the, the, the mandate of heaven, it it is real. And it does make it sound like, um, uh, this is realistic. You know, the thing about Reagan is that, uh, you know, maybe even if he didn't do it, he, uh, at least had, um, you know, he had the capability. He could have. Yes. This this is what should make people mad about Reagan is that we had entered this moment, the, the same moment we're entering now, by the way, where the economy was crap, stagflation, Everybody was insanely demoralized about the country. He, he he could have reorganized the country, perhaps not to the FDR level, but he could have done a lot. But he didn't do anything except for what the Chamber of Commerce wanted. It's so like not only is he not one of those revolutionary figures, we should spit on his grave because of, <laughs> because of what he did. Now, but but you know, you face to the mandate of heaven. You can't do that now. But you know, it, you know, he wasn't just a guy who got a ton of votes. I mean, he like. He did like uh, almost like leftist level, like all this organizing, you know, like I don't even like, uh, you know, if you say if the right, if the Republican Party was going to do organizing, to do, like what would that? I don't even under that would even make sense. But didn't Reagan like he organized like all of these little like local groups uh, and the homemakers and all this kind of stuff? He, he certainly tapped into that. And that was the new right. I mean, the phrase new right has been used so many times, but, but that was one of them. That was new, right. You know, the second or third new, right. There was the direct mail that was then. This was really getting going with flooding people with sort of stuff in their mailboxes long before the internet, uh, under their windshield wiper. Yeah. Oh, well, Oh, telling the elections actually on Wednesday rather than Tuesday, that kind of thing. Or no, the, um, (laughs) you know, but just, just, uh, and this, taps into moral majority stuff. He, he definitely summoned a lot of forces. I go back and forth on this because I hear everything you're saying about the disappointing aspects of it. I don't know if I'd say spit on the grave, but you know, that the, the disappointing ones. <laughs> on the other hand, two things. One, it's all relative. Considering the trajectory we were on before, where you have, um, I think it was Newsweek ran or cover story sometime in the 70s. And it, it basically, I, I think the phrase was, I think we're we're all socialists now, which they then ran that same cover again, basically after President Obama was elected. Uh, the trajectory it was on, he did move that window in a lot of ways, some of which we may not like, but other ones of which we might take for granted now. 
And then there was this overriding conflict with the USSR. And I think for him, as for Nixon, they saw the two of them, Nixon and Reagan, saw the foreign policy as the ball game and then maybe didn't always follow through uh, 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 even on what their instincts or at least what Reagan's instincts might have been on the on the domestic. And maybe the more Bush side of things got more entrenched in that earlier. I don't know. I was a little kid at the time, so so I don't know. I think you I think you nailed it there because Reagan's entire political career was essentially pointing at the hippies and saying if you if you put me in charge I'll I'll stop this right now. He and when he became president not only did he not do that but he just pretty much ignored it all to cut taxes and continue the cold war. So yeah, perhaps that perhaps they really did view, view their job as part of this world struggle with with the USSR instead of the people of the United States. Now, but the, the, there is a possibility, though. So, like, um, you know, one of the weird things about, um, let's talk about acceleration and, and like, uh, you know, the, the, the degeneracy grows every year, you know, uh, this, this kind of stuff. Um, uh, I can think of Oran, Oran talks about, it, like, um, I don't know, the, the, the slippery slope and all this kind of thing. One of the odd things about the slippery slope, et cetera, is that, uh, like the laws that we have that were, I guess they were written. I mean, the interpretations and the law, the civil rights laws and stuff were, they were like woker in like 1973 than like, uh, wherever implemented. So like, you, you know, the, the like the, what, what is that? Um, like disparate impact is mm-hmm. like, a, I mean, that we used to talk about like communism or something. That's a very intense thing. So, you know, it, it it's possible that like, um, so you know whoever wrote that kind of stuff. I mean, th- these people were uh, they were more insane. They were just as insane as, as the leftists of today. And so uh, and and they they like even more aggressive legislatively and stuff. And so I guess there's a possibility those years of the Reagans and and the George Seniors were um, holding that stuff back from uh, you know materializing. I think that would certainly be their own justification. You know, if you could revive. George H.W. Bush and just sit him down and talk to him like Crossfire. That's probably exactly what he'd say. He'd say, yeah, you might think I was a whimper or you might think I was a sellout or you might not even think I was affirmatively bad in these ways. But, you know, in politics, the question is always compared to who compared to what? And this was uh, this was President Obama's pitch to the big bankers early on, right after he got there. Didn't he legendarily held a meeting with heads of the banks or whatever, and said, gentlemen, I'm the only thing standing between you and the mob and the pitchforks right now. And uh, by the way, early, early, early Obama was like, uh, he was toying with running like a very populist campaign and stuff like that. Uh, I mean, people forget this thing. Things changed in, in his early, and I don't mean his early, early, cam- early uh, uh, presidency. I mean, his early campaigning. He was toying with becoming, uh, with being a very uh, uh, di- different type of fellow. And you see, well, because he was David, David up against Goliath, you, mm-hmm. you know, people, people knew about his charisma and his speeches and, and all of that. And, and, but, but still, I think when he said, oh, I'm running after only, you know, he barely got into the Senate before he started running for president. I think a lot of people thought Hillary Clinton would completely steamroll him. And when you're coming in, in that context, yeah, you're Luke Skywalker going up against the Death Star. And maybe something about, you know, Bernie, maybe Bernie 2016, you, you see a lot of that same spark there of, well, if we're going to come in from sideways and from outside, 
populism is sort of the natural thing lying around. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It, it is the, 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 the energy. I know Bernie, he sort of like halfway through the campaign, you could tell he was like, damn, maybe I could, maybe I could win this. Uh, he, he never had that, 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 uh, thing. Um, yeah, but uh, it, you know, also, well, I don't, I don't want to get into that, but yeah, I mean, so it, it, it's hard, it's hard to say. I mean, so, you know, a lot of these, uh, who knows like how, well, here, here's something, you know, uh, Curtis Jarvin said, you know, his grandparents, when they moved to the United States, they mm-hmm. were, they're like, well, you know, we we're here. We, we want to get into the elite circles. We want to, uh, you know, be around the people that matter in DC and stuff. They're like, well, we should become communists because the people who, uh, <laughs> th- that was the cool thing. And, you know, that was a long time ago. All the people working the State Department are communists. We should become a communist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, if I was, you know, moving to Italy and I wanted to be a big, big shot, this is what, this is what all the hotshot people there and in the leadership are, are doing. And so that was a long time ago. I mean, this is something like, uh, you know, apparently like 40 to 60% of school teachers are communists in the United States right now. I mean, none of this stuff was obvious to anybody before social media. Uh, things, things, uh, you know, um, it's possible that there were things where could have been much more radical left wing and, and et cetera. People didn't know people, um, uh, you know, they, they, uh, even you if you mail were away, you had to mail away for it before quite literally, there's a great book called high weirdness by mail. And it, um, first came out in probably the eighties. I think there was another edition. And what this was, it's one of the founders behind the church of the subgenius, which is a sort of arty you know performance art thing almost kind of that i think comes out of austin originally and bob dobbs yeah that whole thing and the minor the kind of head honcho of that he would he would love you know conspiracy theories and just the beautiful freaks that you know make up the corners of this country so he had a, a digest of hey here are all the lunatics that are doing you know fanzines and pamphlets and tracks here's their address and if you send them two bucks and a self-addressed stamped envelope they'll send you all this stuff all of that but you had to seek it out you still have to seek it out with the internet but it's a click away and i think you're right that after the last 20 years plus of internet it's impossible to just blithely say oh nobody thinks that because oh yeah there's at least a hundred thousand people in this country that think no matter how <laughs> you can add as many adjectives into that sentence and as many qualifiers as you want and you're still going to find a, a, a thriving community of it online yeah um uh, merrick your mother believes elvis is still alive doesn't she <laughs> yeah, I had to check in. On, yeah, I had to check in on that. Uh, <laughs> a, I, I, I've complained about it a, a lot of times to Bog Beef, but like, there's a lot of stuff that the internet made, I guess, um, non-consensual that used to be something you had to seek out. Like, mm. for, for example, like pornography. Uh, you used to have to look for pornography. You you absolutely do not now. If you go to if, you, if any website that has advertisements. They're gonna, you know, they're gonna bring them out in the Muhammad. You, you have to look for it. You ever go to a German beer garden? No. We had one open up around here. I went to the German beer garden get the get the pretzel and the schnitzel and the uh, the wheat beer. Um, you guys like that wheat beer? I don't like it. It's got an interesting taste. It's like sour. It's kind of sour, right? 
It's got this like I, I want to say it's like a spice, but it, it's not hot. But it's got this like punch of this this spice thing. I, I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. But uh, you know, we're there, and um, you know, you're doing the whole thing, and you know, you know that they're they're wearing the later hosen. We're having the pretzel. Everything is is so mm-hmm. obvious. So you know, you go to a sports bar or a bar, uh, and, and like a bar that's open like or you know around like five p.m. or something. It's not a nightclub. They have TVs. Obviously, people are gonna watch the game and stuff. And so, obviously, they're going to have German TV, of course. And this was this was around noon, I think. Um, and uh, well, you know, they they show breasts on German TV like at noon. You know this? Yeah, they have they had dude in commercials on Europe on European TV back in the day, right? Yes, yes. Uh, we were watching the news, the German news, and there was a commercial, and they had a, a, a naked woman in. I was shocked. <laughs> Is the barrier? So I haven't you know, just sat down and watched whatever was on CBS or whatever at 7 p.m. I haven't done that in years. Is that barrier still intact with at least the broadcast main channels? There's a, by European standards, very strict decency code. Or has that well, barrier broken down now here too? What they what what people normally say is that uh, when Germans, when they, or when Europeans come to America and they're like, oh, or, you know, let's say they, uh, they have these, uh, you know, they have these little, uh, little bars for expats and stuff over there where they go watch football and stuff. But um, uh, on American TV, there's violence everywhere, and like we're just like, what do you mean? It's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a TV show about cops or something. And they're, they're like, uh, uh, they're like, I can't believe that would be on TV. Uh, they're they're sort of shocked by the violence of American TV. We're like, holy holy crap, is that a nipple? It's noon. What are you guys doing? Yeah, th- this is the old argument that you you would see a lot in the early days of the internet that like, yeah, Americans are so prudish about. It nudity but you don't care about violence well you know what we've i think that the last the last 20 years have pretty much proven that violence on tv and stuff doesn't really matter that doesn't really change anything it doesn't warp a child's brain yes whereas we we also have run we've run a, a, a experiment at the same time where we we just now expose every child to uh not only nudity but like hardcore pornography if they have a if they have a cell phone they've seen it uh, and, and yes, that does warp the shit out of people. It's horrible. So like we were completely right about that and they were wrong. So we should just take a little victory lap around. The, but we shouldn't take a victory lap around the Europeans. They they've suffered enough. <laughs> they've been they've been dunked on thoroughly. Good. The good segue. Here's why the Europeans mm. we should we should pity them right now. They have a massive energy crisis right now at this very second. Well, and this is a good this is one of the other topics I wanted to talk about. Uh, I'd say. And I know, Bog, you don't like the audio quality on it, want to remaster it. But I would say one of your guys' best episodes was that Philosophy versus Hot Lead from almost two years ago now, just tracing out how uh, the the master unified field theory of history, that the evolution of weapons technology is what drives social change, right. and which is a good theory. And you started off by saying, this is a theory of the weak. And that when you talk about X as the unifying driver of history, it's not necessarily that that's 100% true. But when you're in that mode, it can explain a lot and you want to ring it for everything you can. Absolutely. And, and to me, energy and the role of energy in society and history, whatever you want to call it, is a decent candidate for a trump card, no pun intended, to just really be the unified field theory. And the, the main guy I'm cribbing off here is a guy named Vaclav Smil, 
uh, last name S-M-I-L, first name Vaclav, V-A-C-L-A-V. This guy's still alive, I think. Uh, he's born in uh, Czech, whatever the Czechoslovakia back then. He's probably about 80. And he was a professor for a long time at uh, the University of Manitoba. So that's kind of, you know, the the based sort of Texas part of Canada, I, I suppose. And he, if you go to his wiki, he has a list of books and articles a mile long. I have only read two things he, he's ever written, so I can't proclaim to be an expert on him. But he's an expert on sort of energy and human history. He's written a lot on China in that regard specifically. And then pre-Trump, but kind of late teens or maybe under, maybe during Trump, he wrote a book called Energy and Civilization, A History, which sort of kind of his, you know, drop in the mic moment where he lays it all out. And if you've ever played the game Civilization and sort of the evolving from a little primitive caveman all the way up to battleships and stuff like that, it's basically that in book form. He starts out after some introductory remarks, the first calculation he does is he looks at when humans evolved and when we shifted from walking on all fours to walking on two legs and he calculates the energy implications of that in terms of what calories you need and how efficient it is to do and he goes all the way from that to stone tools to bronze to this and that and then he ends with talking about solar energy and stuff like that and this book more than anything else really got me thinking that no matter what else anybody says is their theory of history, as long as it's anything in the physical realm, you can just do a jack move, pull back to a higher level of generality and say, yeah, you're really just talking about energy. And I can think of two examples. One is you know, Marxism and labor and productive forces. You'd say, no, nah, it's just it's a form of energy, it's supplying energy to do what you want. And even weapons, even philosophy versus hot lead. A weapon is just a specialized tool for delivering a bunch of kinetic energy localized into <laughs> your enemy's body, either either close at close range or far away. So I don't know. Does that does that do anything for you guys? <laughs> I think that I think that's a good theory, and it also probably goes both goes both ways. There's a really faint a famous um, historical. I don't know. I guess. I wouldn't say it's a meme, but like, you know, why did the Romans not discover steam power? Mm -hmm. And, and, and the, it's, it's actually a pretty good question if you think about it. Like, they were pretty advanced uh, in, in some ways, you know, it's almost as advanced as, you know, uh, post-medieval post <laughs> post Europe. And the question was like, why didn't they come up with steam power? It's not that comp. Like, they understood the, the, the mechanics of nature well enough that you expect them to stumble upon this and by they, the way you know, they knew about water wheels and stuff like that by the way i i i i think that there were people and it's the kind of the thing in, like in china like uh you know in china people would would um i think that there was some kind of uh like lone inventor people that played with stuff like uh like yeah. steam energy and stuff but yeah, you know the, applying it is totally different yeah there were there were steam toys in the ancient world too but and then the reason there's two reasons that people think that they didn't they didn't master this. And there are two very good reasons. The first is what goes right along with what Claudius is talking about is that they didn't have coal or they didn't, or they didn't know about coal. They didn't understand, didn't understand fossil fuels, which make, you know, steam, steam power actually, you know, viable at large scale. And the second reason is that 
they didn't need it because they already had a, 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 a massive source of free energy, not free, but almost free energy because they would just, you know, go into a territory <laughs> and take a bunch of slaves and slaves are kind of free energy. And that's, wow. well, that's well, it, and or, it, or animal slaves, animal slaves. Th- this gets into exactly it because before, and this is sort of, Smill doesn't frame it exactly that way, but that's the implications of a lot of what he's saying is in, you know, in a pre-modern context, apart from very limited, and he insists that water wheels and windmills, he, he minimizes that. For his theory to really work, he has to say, yeah, that's that's really, really small ball. That that's a, was a drop in the bucket. He says it was your own muscles or, you know, livestock or other people that you could either pay or force to use their mm-hmm. muscles on your behalf. And that was it. And wood, I guess, right? You burn a lot of wood uh, or dung. If you're in, if you're in a lot of parts of the world, you burn a lot of dung if you don't have big trees. But that but either way, it. the energy is, is food. It's grain. Yes, it, it's, it's coming, uh, you know, all energy in a sense, I guess, at least in our, you know, our planet comes from the sun originally in, in one sense or another. Uh, even geothermal, you know, Earth's core or whatever, even that is dependent on the formation of the Earth, which then is dependent on the formation of the sun. So, you know, you, you can trace it all back as a reason why the sun is the earliest symbol of monotheistic God and all that is the ultimate source of all of all power and all things. But but Mark, this is this is an excellent point in terms of thinking about how it plays into history and politics and why I really think that I like this energy is the one ring to rule them all move because anything Marxist, you just say, yeah, yeah, that's already that's chapter three of this guy's book. Right. That that's all actually followed <laughs> up by this other stuff. But. You know, why didn't they take that step? They had little toys. So in sort of the Hellenistic world and in Egypt, in not very early Egypt, but in kind of right before they got taken over by Rome, they did have these little almost toy-like gadgets which used steam. I don't know much about the details here, but they were aware in the abstract of the principles. But there just wasn't the input. It didn't click for whatever reason. And I think that the availability and the unquestioned, almost no one back, the, almost no one questioned the morality of just capturing other people and forcing them to do what you wanted. It, it just, it, it never really came up. And maybe an explanation for why Europe, why did it all sort of the technological leap happen there? They put the pieces together. They really started using it. Some people's theory on that is it's the Black Plague. And that because the Black Plague, you know, it's all over Eurasia, but it's just catastrophic in Europe and maybe especially Western Europe. I mean, swathes of it are 30, 40, 50 percent in some areas. Some towns are entirely wiped out. You start to see labor movement. You get a lot of unrest. You get a lot of urge to navigation and stuff to kind of break out of the trap. And then when they rebuild, are the seeds in there to start on the long term? harnessing this stuff which eventually will lead to the industrial revolution 500 years later do you buy that well this this goes in this uh, a continuing argument that i have with people uh, about family structure i think that in western europe you already had the basic the, the basic family unit of western europe even before the black plague was already like one recognizable to us, but 
after after this you know, this cataclysm that happened and human labor went from being pretty much I'm gonna say worthless, but like very low value because there's so many people and so and so little land to being extremely valuable. That created conditions for a type of man that would do these things. Now, I guess it sounds very vague. I don't want to because I don't want to. I don't want to say the f word, <laughs> the Palestinian word, right? But I, I think that I would think that was a social change more than a technological change. However, there's been a lot. There's been a lot of arguments about this. Uh, another guy. I, I, I keep. I keep I keep um, giving him shout outs, even though I don't agree with most of what he, he writes anymore. Jared Diamond speculated about this, whether or not necessity really is the mother of invention or if people invent things that immediately are recognizable as useful. And then like a market Jeez. develops for that product versus here's a niche that needs to be filled. He, he, I think he actually used this to tackle the, the question about why, Ancient people didn't, you know, invent X technology, and, and uh, it, there, there's the argument that they didn't need it, which we just made. But there's also the argument that just no one ever thought about it. And if, if someone had had thought up the steam engine in uh, in you know 100 AD, that that we would have had the steampunk Roman Empire crap. And that's, I yeah, that's the Connecticut and Yankee and King Arthur's court. Yeah, uh, uh, fantasy, right? If you could take. You know, a little a, a boat's worth or, or a van's worth of what you needed to get stuff started, and just take a time machine, go back to fill in the blank. Could you? How quick could you get it up and running? Yeah, I, I, it's a little off brand for what we're talking about, but my my take on the on the the Black Death is that you, like I said, you had already you had Western Europeans already had a very particular type of social. I don't know, desire that that was, had been there forever. Uh, you know, people like the, the, the Romans wrote about how, you know, our, how our people were, uh, you know, hundreds of years before. And it, it wasn't always flattering. You had that. And you had this moment in time where bam, the entire social order gets, there's a social upheaval. And now like the, uh, you know, the common peasant has more value, has opportunities to, to, to spread, like to spread out and treat the, land that had not been a frontier as frontier and then also also he has to yeah 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 a lot of that stuff is like well you know that well i'll just say that they they had to it wasn't just a direct negotiation with the elite with the uh with the so-called elites whatever by the way i want to compare this this theory before we go further you mentioned um that it comes before the you know the marxist theory is the um the theory of uh labor Mm mm-hmm uh, and like, so obviously you need energy to do labor, but you know, I heard, I just want to mention, I heard one of the funniest arguments about the, uh, the theory of labor and it's, it's a pretty, I mean, there are, by the way, there are people that are pretty right wing that, that, that believe in that theory. And you know, I think that the, the explanation they say is, well, he got it from Joseph Smith, uh, not Joseph, that's the Mormon guy. Who's the, um, oh, Adam Smith, uh, uh, Adam Smith, Adam Smith. Yeah. That uh, that, that he plagiarized. I was, I was picturing a, a Karl Marx Joseph Smith crossover and a, and a fusion of <laughs> Marxist Mormonism, and that could that could go the distance right there. Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean to me, that sounds kind of scary. Like it could take over the world or something. But uh, I heard the funniest argument I've heard about this. I I, I can't believe I haven't heard. I don't follow these things, but um, 
so, you know, the idea is that the labor produces the thing. And so, you, by the way, this comes involved in the, because this gets spicy with the energy question. It's like, well, well, why is oil valuable? It's like, well, because the, the roughnecks, they, you know, have, you have to work to get the oil out. How the, 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 but the, the argument is the mud pie argument. It's like, okay, what if people put in a bunch of labor making mud pies? Uh, they're still not valuable. Um, you know, and I'm sure there's some long-winded explanation, but, uh, you know, the, but, you know, with the energy thing, it's like, um, it comes before that. So like, uh, yeah, you know, work can make things valuable. However, you could waste it. You could waste it making mud pies, Yes, but wasting, wasting what? Wasting energy. This is what they call that broken windows fallacy that, mm -hmm. you know, I go around, smash all the windows. Hey, the glazier has got to come fix them all and he gets paid. So that grows the economy. You said, well, no, cause you put me in a hole and now you're just getting me back out of it. And so it, 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 it does, you know, the, the physical reality does kind of have to come first. And I think, you know, I'm not claiming to be some deep Marxist scholar, but I think they cheat a little bit by saying, well, no, it's really all about the social forces of production. Like, okay, that's to me already four or five rungs up the ladder of complexity and abstraction from just where's the fuel coming from? What, 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 where, where's the energy flowing? This guy smill analyzes it in terms of energy flows. So when he looks at a past society, Rome or, or whatever it might be, he tries and he tries to quantify all this stuff, which is sort of endearing. It's kind of cute to see him do it. I, I don't you know. He, I guess you have to try to put numbers on it or else you're just totally BSing. But he looks at, you know, what were all the energy stocks? How are they flowing? It's a really mind-blowing way to start looking at the world and thinking about these things. And this is a because I said I'd only read two things by this guy. He's written dozens of, of other stuff. The only other thing I've read by him, he wrote a book, and this is uh, something we were talking about heavily the last time I was with you guys. Why America is not a new Rome, which is a kind of interesting book for a, a specialist on energy to write. He wrote this one in 2010, and it's that he he goes into hyper quantitative detail on Rome and then compares it to the United States and the West generally in 2010. And he comes up with this calculation, and I want to make sure I've got this right. I wrote this note down. He estimates that in the height of the Roman Empire, about one one thousandth of all the energy was coming from what we would see as machines. So, you know, windmill or especially a water mill. They, they did have some water mills. And now he says it's exactly the reverse. Now he says it's one one thousandth of the energy being you know used in the United States today is coming from direct human or animal muscle power. And then the rest is coming from our wonderful machines, which, you know, I don't know if he's right or not, but it's probably something along those lines. And so the point of him laying all this out is to say analogies with Rome might be interesting to play with, but he would argue they're ultimately useless because of this just completely fundamental difference in transformation in the ancient world or even the early modern world versus now. Whereas I think you guys, me would want to say, no, human nature doesn't necessarily change that radically. These cycles still do kick in. He's not saying, and I can picture Malcolm coming in here, he's not, this guy Smill is not saying that America has cracked the code and its hegemony is going to last forever. In fact, quite the opposite. He says near the end of this book that America's hegemony is, quote, less effective and much more fragile than most people think. 
but he just still wants to kind of poo poo and reject the Roman analogy, which hurt me. And, you know, we really do like milking that analogy for all it's worth, but it is pretty different. And it is really hard, even for people who live in a rural context now, if you're living in the first world, even the second world, if those terms don't mean anything, really kind of hard to put ourselves back in the mindset of a world where human and animal muscle power was the only game in town. Well, I mean, you nailed it. You you nailed it with the last part there. The the advantage of technology is that you can accomplish things with machines that previously you could only accomplish with masses of humans or animals. But most, you know, the the you know, an ox can pull can pull a plow, but he can't. You know, he he can't harvest the grain. So like that, that, that that's a problem beyond like you know straight straight muscle power can solve. Uh, the thing the, the the nice thing about technology for us was that it allowed us for a long period of time, and sadly that period has passed, to have a powerful country that was pretty popular, pretty unpopulated. It was not very population dense at all, especially compared to to Europe. And that was like one of the reasons why America was so uh, amazing. Because you had this, you, you had all this, you had all this energy being harnessed, all this prosperity in a place that wasn't overcrowded and teeming with people, climbing all over themselves. And that's the biggest, the big problem with Rome. This is the an underrated change. The, the Romans who won, who, who destroyed Carthage, were not the same people as the Romans of 300 AD. They had fundamentally the empire had fundamentally changed them, and one of the problems with empire is that you it, it like a vacuum. It sucks in all these people from other places, and and deposits them in this in a small area. And as soon as you start living like that, you you do that. This is one thing that changes your nature. You will change when that happens, and. For me, that's the biggest the biggest change in the in the American, not not just America, but in the American himself. That I don't know how you can fix that other than, well, you, I, before I would have said like policies to, to stop the insane amount of people that are like are coming in every year. But like at this point, that's obviously never going to happen. So I don't know. Pro- there's probably no going back. It's a sad answer. It's it's because you've talked, I think, a couple times on the show about this idea that cities, in particular, uh, you know, are not self-sustaining just on the pure population level, and that they tend yeah. to suck people. So, uh, Smill talks about this in this "Why America Is Not a New Rome" book briefly, uh, and and he uses this phrase I'd never seen it before. It's a Latin phrase, which I assume he's getting from some ancient author. And he says, Rome, and I think he's talking about the city of Rome specifically here, is the vorax populorum, the devourer of peoples, which is a yes. really grim phrase there. Uh, or I think we would all see it as grim. Whereas in a you know transhumanist, post-human future, might say that's a good thing. We're being turned into, you know, something better. We're we're evolving or, or whatever. And a lot of, you know, creative destruction is involved in the evolution. When you talk about overpopulation, I know Bog has a real bone to pick with uh, one billion Americans, Matt Iglesias, in uh, in particular on this. Uh, and that, you know, setting aside any other questions, immigration and that, the sense of 
we are either full up or pretty close to it or maybe over full. And do you all know about the split that happened within the environmental movement in the previous generation on this exact question of immigration Mm -hmm. and overpopulation? Oh, yeah. The Sierra Club was for a long time very famously anti-immigration for for obvious reasons. You don't want the country to be 330 million people if you really care about the the natural environment of the continental United States. That's going to be counterproductive. And there was a there was a very rapid and dislocation might be pushing it too far. But, yes, it it, it was like it was a turn on a dime. And I've been told I have no idea if it's true or not that this was like a funding issue. They received a, a boatload of money from, you know, the same people who we don't mean to describe them anymore. It's the same people who are, who are pushing all this crap. And then immediately the Sierra club uh, came to Jesus about immigration and decided that we, we needed that we needed, you know, 1 billion Americans. Yeah. Um, you know, this makes me think about the, um, how we feel about technology, you know, if you, if you just take, take it from the, the energy standpoint. So, uh, or before I go there, by the way, you know, the thing about the cities, like, um, this was like, uh, th- this is probably, especially in most drugs, just, I was reading, uh, I can't remember, we were studying for something and I was reading about this in ter- with, uh, with London. And there was all these, these comics from like the, uh, I say comic, but like, uh, you know, like the, these political, uh, cartoons and stuff from like the 1800s and mm-hmm. but uh like statistically even going back for like london has been like obviously london where we come the united states comes from england and england is more than almost any place dominated by the city and it's one city you know other places aren't like that and uh but london going back to like i want to say like for a very very long time has been this way and in terms of like uh, it, it can people, uh, excess pot. You could almost say in certain way, excess population from the, the country, m- the, uh, the countryside moves to moves mm. to London and they're consumed because like, uh, and this was talking about like, even in the, in the 1800s, 1700s, the birth rate in London was like, you know, negative 40 or whatever. It's not, it wasn't excess and it never has been. That's the thing. If it was excess population moving to the city, it would be okay. Like that would be, that would, okay, whatever. That would, that would be fine. It's never been ex- excess. They forced people to move, move, uh, they with through enclosures, forced people to move into the cities and become factories. So if they didn't want to, they hated it. This right. is part, a big part of the industrial revolution. You know, the, you've I, heard the term Luddites and people like that. Well, yeah. They, was, they were, they, yeah, I know, I know, but like, this is, I, I know you, I know I was what you're make, saying. trying to make it sound evil and Darth Vader, like, you know, the excess population will, will, will consume them in London. Yeah. But that, that is absolutely accurate about the cities and like, they're still that way. And, you know, this is whenever these urban, urban versus non-urban things come up and they come up a lot on Twitter politics because like everybody on Twitter, but us apparently are, you know, live in, the, live in these cities and, and love them. Like once your, once your society becomes mostly urban or driven by urban ideas, it just becomes vampiric by necessity. It has to, you're not good. It's not going to reproduce itself. You have to hoover up people. And, because of like changes in birth rates in the United States, they can no longer just hoover up people from the Midwest anymore. They have to hoover up people from the entire planet. But this is just this is this is just a, a aspect of 
of living this way. And it's really depressing. And if you, if there was like one weird trick you could do to repair the social fabric of the United States, it would be finding a way to deal with this problem. I think this problem of urban is, you know, kind of trying to reverse the century plus long shift from, we talked about this a lot last time of, from everybody being spread out and, and involved more directly with the agriculture to concentrating in the cities to try to reverse that. Well, I mean, to steal man, the, 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 the walkable cities people, because I know what they would say about this. Um, so, <laughs> you, you, both of, both of us, like in this argument will be like, we will be saying like, wow, the cities are, 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 you know, they, they do this horrible thing. They, the walkable people city, a walkable, pe- walkable cities people would say, um, well, but they don't have to. And they would point to like all these changes that happened in the 20th century. Like there was all this, um, uh, kind of, uh, engineering, uh, urban engineering that was done to sort of change, change the way that these cities, uh, were judge now, Doom, right. Judge doom, uh, ripped up all the streetcars and put in the freeways instead. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, like you have, uh, uh, all the, all the old Irish neighborhoods and the little Italy and stuff. That's all, that's all gone. And, um, this, this is, I mean, this, that, by the way, this, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the flip side of that debate, this is all this stuff about the red lining and blah, blah, blah. But, um, uh, but like, I lived, I, in, a, I lived in a, in a smaller, not in New York style, but a, a smaller Northeastern town for a couple of years. I lived in one of those old Italian neighborhoods and they still had, you'd hear old guys on the street still talking in some Italian dialect to each other. So it was just, this is a while ago now. It was just. But these guys were in their eighties. They're all probably dead now. Right. And, and that Nate, like, like, and, and it, like uh, the seeding to those, to the walkable neighborhoods is like, yes, like there were times and there were moments and there were neighborhoods that like, uh, people had lots of kids and, um, and this, this kind of thing. But however, if you stretch out, look through time and history in the world, the whole walkable cities thing, or just the, um, uh, cities being able to, uh, produce like like uh, um people have children there and stuff like that you know i work with people uh, when i lived in austin i would work with people that would sit in a car two hours a day uh to get to work and i was i was you know um uh but i know why they did it they did it because they had families and uh you know it, it, it's hard to say one reason or the other but uh this is just how cities are i think in target yeah you'd rather commute for four hours a day than to throw your kids into the meat grinder of like public public school in the middle of Austin. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So that, that, you know, that <laughs> the, the d- debate that we'd have with the walkable cities, because the walkable cities people say like, well, first of all, the cities are managed like insanely in America. Like that is absolutely true. You don't have to let criminals going around killing people and stuff like that. Uh, which I mean, Chicago is back to crack academic levels of crime. I mean, it's, uh, you don't have to live. And like, I understand that. Like, however, I think the argument to them would be like, even if we did all these things, right. Cities still just kind of do this. Well, what I mean, maybe, maybe not. Uh, the, I, I, something Claudia said, I don't, th- I, I don't think that we would, we have to go back to like, everybody works in the agriculture industry. I don't, I don't think that's like a necessary part of it, but I do think that like, uh, <laughs> return, returning to low population density, or like, we're still pretty low population density. Like if we could, if if we decided tomorrow to stop the current, the current, you know, doctrine of immigration, which we're not. I mean, I know we're not going to. But if we did tomorrow, 
we we could we could write the ship well, because these the the problem with the like the my main problem with these people like um you know these people on Twitter be like um uh, what what do they call this thing where they're the urban um planner they're like well yeah. I, you know I went to school to be an urban planner it's like well. So you have this degree and now like, you know, all those businesses, that big building there, you should, you can like, you are allowed to make decisions on, yeah. on this. They're playing Sim City, but in real yeah. life. Uh, and so th- like this, this whole thing is absurd. Like unless. By the way, there's just this thing as a right wing urban planner. Well. It's not, it's, the, it's not well, really. A I mean, thing. I, I, I Albert, Speer, Albert Speer had a bunch of models who wanted to, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'll meet in America. That doesn't think like you're if you're an urban planner and you're like right wing, you're you should just look for a new job. You're well, never you have someone to make the trains around time. But uh <laughs> Okay. But you know the, the like the point with like No, I, I I don't accept I don't accept this this uh I don't accept this. Like if you like one of the career as an urban planner, like what you're gonna have to produce what the market for urban planning wants, and the only market for urban planning is the people who run these cities. And what do they want? Uh, that well, we want we want some ugly ass brutalist crap, and we want to you know uh, get rid of single family zoning and stuff like that. Oh, I don't think you can be you could you can really be you can't really be a right wing urban planner. It just doesn't make sense in in America in 2022. So okay, the thing with the urban planning, it's like well, uh, this is kind of like the patronage thing, like. Okay, the whoever owns that factory or that building in downtown or the people that work there, like uh, those people, like have a right to uh, uh, about how how it's run. Unless you are in charge of the United States, you shouldn't worry about managing the population levels and this kind of thing. And, and it's wrong for you to do so. You you can't claim to be like uh, like oh I'm I'm for democracy and but also. Uh, we need 30 million more, you know, we need, uh, uh, Ohio needs 8 million more, uh, people that'll vote Democrat 65, more likely 65%. That's bullshit. Like you, you, you can't, uh, this is like diabolically evil. This is like Dr. Evil. They should be like, you know, stroking a cat in a, uh, you, you know, in an underground lair or something like unless you're in charge of something, it's wrong for you to do this kind of planning about stuff. So, you know, the thing with like, uh, why we why why do you want a billion people here? Are you do you like uh you know do you do you own a um uh, do you need these people working for you? If not, you're 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 effing up, and there's a good chance you're probably uh you're probably motivated by bad reasons. He he and Iglesias in particular, I think I don't know which is the chicken and which is the egg here, but I remember him harping on something I don't know a decade or more ago. So he lives in D.C. And at the time I saw this, I don't think I did, but I, I do live in D.C. now. I've lived here for a decade. D.C. has very strict zoning laws. D.C., you cannot build tall buildings. Mm-hmm. And yes. so it ha- even though it has, you know, we, we beat this to death last time, but, you know, D.C. has had this big boom. But we're really talking about the D.C. area because it just cannot, by law, grow up. So instead, it's kind of grown out and, you know. Half of Maryland and the northern part of Virginia now uh, look like New Jersey, basically, because of it, just in the last, really, generation. And so what Iglesias was saying, there was some study he was riffing on that just in sort of the northwestern part of D.C., which is the bougie, leafy, greeny part, a back-of-the-envelope calculation of how much uh, value of the real estate is being locked up and not able to be accessed because of... Uh, because of these restrictive zoning laws. And I don't think it was, it might not have been a trillion dollars, but it was some absurdly huge figure 
that this study said that if you could just build up instead of out, you'd be getting all this. And so for him in particular, I think he's just a very line go up utilitarian guy. That's just how his brain works. And so he'd say it would be worth more if we did it that way. This is a funny, a funny nuance of, of the left and Democrats and stuff is I used to, um, I lived in Austin. Uh, I would listen, you know, when I'm working on things, I would listen to the radio and, uh, I would tune into the, um, the city council meetings and, they would go through these, like uh, the zoning decisions in the, the city council. And like, it was just every single one was exactly the same. It would be, there's a developer. He wants to build a set of condos. And then they would bring out the people that actually work in the buildings that he wants to, they have to get rid of or have to, to you know, they had to put a parking garage there or roads or whatever. The last one, I still remember it. They brought out the people and they, they worked in a, I, they were all the, and these people, they're super liberals, right? So the, these people were, uh, they worked in a, in a, in a hip, like a recording studio and they were telling the, they were telling the, the city council, they're like, well, this is, you know, this is where the Rolling Stones recorded this and recorded that. And, uh, and of course they said, well, you know, we, we, we can't, we can't bulldoze the thing. And the, the funny nuance is that, um, like, I think if you had right wingers on that board of this decision, they'd be like. Well, hell yeah, build you know build build a uh, um uh you know build a giant thing. I don't you know what what's the problem? You know you you, you have the permits, et cetera, Go for it. But liberals, they they're like their policies. They produce like um expensive white people uh uh neighborhoods in in these cities. Like it, their you know rent is super expensive, et cetera. I think I'm guessing if you had like a typical right winger like you know, doing, uh, doing the zoning in Manhattan and stuff, uh, rent would be a lot cheaper, but it would be less white, rich, you know, all the things that like liberals, like on paper, they would like, Oh no, we, we want it full of the, you know, um, uh, uh, and I think this nuance is where you have this movement of the, the Yimbies or whatever, which I consider like, uh, you know, it's, it's you don't have a, like uh, the NIMBY is, is the, the, the thing I understand more than anything. I don't want a strip club next to my house. You have a right. To, to to do that well to I've, say that i've heard that shift by the way the the history of the the trump real estate empire encapsulates it perfectly because from my understanding trump's dad was the king of subsidized housing and he would have contracts i think with the government at all three levels i think for housing that then there'd be some kind of rent control or subsidy whatever it was so that regular people could live there uh, the sun obviously went a different direction and went a luxury direction. Uh, and so I think that right there captures, I mean, it's a bigger shift going on in society and stuff at the time, but really those two different models. Can I ask, I've heard that cities like Houston, especially, I've heard it described as just there's no zoning. And so you'll have a strip club next to an elementary school, next to an industrial factory, next to a park, just all mumbled together. It, it, yeah. Is that so right? Houston's not really a city. So Houston is like, uh, so I live in a small town and it's just like, if that small town kept going for a very, very long way, uh, like, uh, Merrick, we don't, we know someone that lives in downtown Houston, right? Mm -hmm. and, yeah. he's, and he says like, it's not like a downtown. There's not like people that live here and they go to the they go to the, the yoga salon and stuff like that. Houston's different. It's, it's not really, it's not really a city city. 
it, it all. But the, all the amount of people there and stuff. But like you said, there's just this big ass highway, people going 100 miles an hour. And on the side of it, there's uh, you know strip malls. And then there's a big subdivision, etc. I like Katy. Katy is a is a nice place. And, and Denver, for my, I've spent some time in Denver, and it seems like that too, just completely unplanned and just sort of you know grew up on each other in a way that's very confusing. I, I swear once trying to find a friend's house, I passed by the intersection of Mississippi and Mississippi. There were somehow two different Mississippi streets or <laughs> avenues intersecting, uh, you know, that it just not, not very well thought out or which, well, I'm, I'm loading it that way by saying not very well thought out. I'm putting a thumb on the, it should be heavily planned, zoned and regulated side. But again, as you say, if I'm the one who ends up living next to a strip club or a horse rendering plant or what have you, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to wish that there were a lot more rules. Yeah. But you'll probably live in a huge subdivision with like, uh, this is the, you know, the liberals, they hate, they, they do the zoom out aerial photo of the, uh, gigantic subdivision. But I mean, in my opinion, that's why Houston is, is like, uh, uh, by, by the way, Houston gets a lot of shit done. I mean, especially in terms of when we talk about the energy industry, uh, you know, everything going out of Louisiana is being, is being planned and, and done out of, out of Houston. And also Houston is a city where you can raise kids because you're, because you're not going to be living uh, in this, uh, you're not going to be riding the subway and stuff like this. The planning part is fake. And you just hit on why you can tell it's fake because they're like the, the you know, example, uh, the, the Uber example in the United States of like planned communities are these suburbs that they hate. What they, what they, what they hate is what they call sprawl. And um, sprawl is just like the natural desire of the common person to, to have something that belongs to themselves and not, you know, live in mouse utopia. That's all that is. Like sprawl just means we uh, we should spread out so I have something so that I'm not, you know, going to live the rest of my life as a as a surf. That, that's all sprawl. That's all sprawl means. So, you know, I, of course – I had never thought about this until this very moment, Claudia. She really, you really, it's kind of a, a pill. I'm not sure if it's a black or a white pill yet. That the fact that that law in D.C. that you can't have a building tire, higher than the Washington Monument may have caused Virginia to become a, <laughs> become a swing state or a blue state. Because if D.C. could be, could be New York City, we we might not have been blessed with so many. Uh, government bureaucrats in the last 20 Ooh. years and we still might be a red state. Well, that, yes, if you could go, that's a back to the future mission for you, Mark, then, and for, and for uh, <laughs> Virginians is go back and find whatever era. And DC has got that weird, you know, I mean, it has a government, but it's totally by permission of Congress. And I think Congress could nuke it all tomorrow if they wanted to theoretically, right. If, 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 if politically, but whatever moment in its history that they put these strict zoning laws in, if you could go back and, and, you know, sl slip a few bills to the right guys to, to have it go another way. Maybe, maybe your state would still be a darker, darker shade of red. Someone directed me to an, uh, an Iggy tweet, actually, Iglesias tweet that I, I didn't know this either, that the DC doesn't have its own like district attorney. It's the United, United States attorney. Uh, does that function there? And this is a big complaint by Matt Iglesias and people who live in DC that they can't, they don't have their, their own, the, the, having statehood would allow them to be able to manage themselves, you know, and, and 
turn DC into an even bigger shithole than it is. This is a big problem for them because they don't have total control control over the the the, 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 the prosecution. And you see this most graphically that there's some mingling together of the federal and quote unquote state or you know the District of Columbia systems. One example is you'll be in you know divorce court or custody court in the DC district government, so just their trial level court. And they'll do a couple, you know, custody matters, whatever. And then all of a sudden they'll call out United States versus Smith. And a federal marshal will lead in a guy in an orange jumpsuit, you know, in in shackles to, you know, get arraigned or whatever on some on some heavy stuff. And then they'll shuffle him out and they'll be right back to small claims court or whatever. So, <laughs> so it is based. It, it is not. You know, it does have a, a government in a sense. And there's elections and there's a mayor and, and all that. But it's it's. It has that sort of Damocles over it. There's a home rule. So every law that D.C.'s government passes can't go into effect for some period of time. I think it might be two months so that Congress can decide whether it wants to veto that law. And uh, to my knowledge, though, they've only done it once. Do You know what it was? No. There was a needle sharing, you know, a needle exchange <laughs> thing. And I think Jesse Helms got the boys together to, to veto that at some point in the 80s or 90s. To my knowledge, that's the only one I've ever heard cited where they've actually used their veto power. All right. So going back to the the original thesis, I guess, we're talking about if, if energy really is the driver of, of human history. So we had the, for, for, for most of human history, we had the era of you know, muscle muscle power drove everything. We kind of dipped our toes into using water the, and wind. The energy would be the food, though. Right, right. But in, you, the you first, know in, in the first instance, but I mean, when you you know pick something up, you're you're a tool for that purpose. But but you yeah. got the energy from the food, though. Yes. Yes, but yeah. it was it, it, if if you <laughs> try to put it in a nice way, if you have a guy for that to collect the food and do all this stuff, it's kind of a self sustaining reaction, right? You have these pe- these group of people that they have to collect the energy and then you have the energy to feed people to do more stuff. Mm, right? Still, let's, you're on, let's say you're on a Greek Island. You cannot get enough food there or grow enough food there to have a big slave army. So, so uh, like, you know, the, all the power, like, uh, you know, in, in like the antiquity or whatever, it'll be like whoever controls, uh, you know, Egypt or whatever. So mm. still just, ba- this is why they use the phrase, the breadbasket of Rome or, or whatever. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Okay. So yeah, whether, we're on wheat, wheat whether power. slaves use it or you use it or, or the animal use it, the energy is still the food. It was the food is the medium, but yes. Okay. Sure. Fair enough. Well, so, but we're, we're not talking about the, the energy itself. We're talking about the way, to, way it's utilized, right? So when you have a water mill and a windmill, you're, it's still the same energy. You're still, it, you're still using it to, to, to grind wheat. But it's, not, it's like you're still it's using not, the same battery. You just you have, a, you have a different way to, to charge it. But, it's but, that, but that's energy. I mean, real quick, this guy Smill, back taking that Smill pill, page 12 <laughs> of his big energy and civilization book, he has a chart. And just listing out different energy sources by density, which he has MJ over KG, which I guess is millijoules per kilogram, maybe, right? He has foodstuffs uh, ranked. He says that's very low. That only is 0.8, whatever that means. 
And then crude oil is very, very high. That's 40 to 44. So that's 40 times as dense energy. So it does all ultimately come from the food, which ultimately comes from the sun. So does the oil, right? The dinosaurs ate plants or, you know, animals, and then they died and turned into oil and, and, and then we're using them. So it all ultimately comes from the food, but the more concentrated it is, the more, the more, the more stuff you can do with it on the back end. Yeah. I remember there was this, there was this conspiracy theory it used to be, uh, and if you ever worked on cars, you know how stupid it is. But the conspiracy theory was like, uh, you know, there was some, the pill, some guy on a farm and he had a, like a carburetor that would like a car run for a hundred, a hundred miles. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, a thousand miles a gallon or whatever, or, or, um, or a car that runs on, on, uh, I'm thinking the one that cars runs on water and all this kind of stuff that you don't need. You don't need, uh, like, uh, right, you just drop this pill in, in your engine along with some water and it'll run just, or in your car and it'll run just fine. Right. Or, or the liberals today, basically this with like, uh, you know, re- we'll just do renewables. Just, we'll just replace, uh, the oil with renewables. But it's like, if you've, you know, this, this, there's this magic stuff, you know, that you can refine it from crude and it, it will move 3000 pounds of car, like 20 miles with a gallon of it. And also it's, it's easy to transport and stuff like that. This is, this is, this is magic stuff that is, you, that you can't just like, well, we'll just replace this with, with this other thing. We'll just replace it. No, 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 no. This is a we'll replace it with sunshine. Right. This is a very, very special, special thing that we have here. Uh, and you know, this made me feel about this. With, with, I was thinking about this with, in terms of technology, like, um, you know, in terms of being pro technology or against technology, like how we feel about different technologies, technologies that, that the technologies that, that sort of utilize resources like, like oil or coal or stuff like that. I think everybody likes those technologies. You know, we like stoves. We, we like cars and stuff like this. You know, I was thinking about my cell phone, like, um, uh, or the self-driving car, you know, and I was thinking about, I was like, you know, if they invent that, like, I know my boss will just call me while I'm in the car and like immediately start giving me things to do or my cell phone, you know, my cell phone is always one. I, I yes. have to do things because of myself and me, not, not, I can't, I can't dump oil or, or coal into my phone and make it do these things. It's making me do things. So, you know, well, I you like the car engine. Even, you see that even in word cell jobs. So if you were a lawyer 40 years ago, you'd write your brief, you'd mail it off. Or you'd send it in an envelope, you know, you'd file it physically with the court or you'd send a memo physically to your client. And then you'd get a little breathing room where they'd have a day or two to think about it. They might call you up. They might send a letter back. Now you send it in. It's a PDF. You can be getting yelled at 45 seconds later by the person on the other side who says, hey, you missed a spot. So just that pace, you know, everything that is a convenient device is also a way for whoever's on the other end of that communication to poke you quicker. So it's definitely double-edged sword. Merrick, you were trying to take it to the basket and we derailed you. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so I'll, I'll phrase it more diplomatically. So we've talked about different me- like mediums of energy, whatever. Uh, we're, we're on grain power uh, up until, uh, I guess if we want to quibble, we'll say, well, the water mills and windmills, is that grain power? Is that Well, that's you know? like the crossbows was for you guys with the weapons thing, where you got to be like, yeah, don't worry about that, because that screws up. Yeah, yeah, because yeah, it's, it's an edge case. But like, really, things change when we discover that you can that you can burn coal 
and uh, and produce and produce energy because there's a lot of coal laying around. It's it's extremely dense energy wise, so far more dense than anything you get out of you know to wheat and to feed animals or or slaves. And now you you society is going to fundamentally change. Civilization is going to fundamentally change because it has to because now you have. You can make machines that do that. that you can make a, a giant, you can make a, a, a train, you can make a locomotive that can haul massive tons and tons of materials across the United States. It can haul, it can haul a person, it can haul an army over vast distances in no time at all. And like this is a, the driving force behind what we call the second industrial revolution. It, it's funny you say that about, you know, getting an army or, or getting anything from point A to point B. When I was a kid, I would look at maps. I still do, but, you know, just looking at maps was a, something I would do. And you'd think about in any war, you'd look at a map and you'd be like, why don't they just go from here to there? It's not that far. And then you realize up until yesterday in historical terms, it was cheaper to send a boat from Virginia to India than it was to get the same amount of stuff from the coast of Virginia to Charlottesville. Yeah, absolutely. This is a this is a a, a thing that people agonized over in Virginia for forever until up, up until like until trains kind of we we had these all these canal projects and and and, and ideas about how we can move things across the state. Yeah, because the geography of Virginia made it very difficult. And when you mention coal in particular, coal is interesting because it is way denser than certainly the, the the muscle power. And it's also very portable and storable. And you dig a big hole in the ground, you dump a bunch of coal in it, put a tarp over it. You can come back and use that years later. More sort of modern forms of using or fossil energy, natural gas in particular, has a huge capital investment on the front end, is very finicky, has to be pressurized, has to be processed, all this stuff has has to do with it. But one of the differences, and this is a segue into the more environmental effect of things, coal has a lot of other stuff in it. It's just, it is dense, but it's still, if you look at like the molecular structure of coal, it's nuts, it's all over the place. Methane, natural gas, CH4, it's these little pyramids, these little tetrapods of a carbon and four hydrogens there's less uh, uh, feckle. There's less other stuff going on. So on the environmental side, if you get the same amount of energy generated from coal versus gas, the gas is half as in carbon dioxide intensive. So a lot of the reductions that have happened in terms of the intensity of emissions, a lot of it just has to do with, with the increased use of natural gas for power. But now the green agenda, they don't like that. They see it as a trap. They want to just leap over gas now entirely. And as you say, go entirely to renewables. You know, uh, I don't know if this is taking it to, uh, well, I think this, this is on topic. So, you um, you know, we're talking about like uh, how, how energy interfaces with regular politics. And if we, we went into the smell thing and that, that it must, that uh, we could, we should be able to look for it in, uh, you know, in smaller places like, you know, American history in recent. So, uh, everyone's seen the, the there's a website says what what WTF happened in 1972 or 71 or whatever. Um, I like classic cars. I was working on one this morning, and there's a big difference between a classic car from 1971 and one from 1972. And you can look at American politics. Uh, 
This is when we, we come up the gold standard, et cetera. And from what I understand, I'm not totally sure, but you can help me here, is that um, 1971 or so, uh, Nixon says, before this point, a, you know, when we're on quote unquote, the gold standard, the gold standard was in fact also the oil standard where, um, you know, a dollar equated to like, uh, I don't know, a 10th of a gallon of gasoline or something like this. Is this true? I don't know if that's true in that sense. That gets into the finance side, which I don't know much about. I do know that you have the following two things happen in rapid succession. You have the creation of the EPA in 1970. And that has a very unusual history to it, which we can get in if you want to. And then you have uh, OPEC forming. It may have existed before, but after the 1973 war, or maybe enduring it, I don't know the exact uh, timing, they really start flexing. And as we've seen just a week ago, they're, they're still able to flex when they want to. And the price of oil quintuples, according to Smill quintuples between the fall of 1973 and the spring of 1974, which, you know, is, is even more than what we've seen in, in our very recent history. Now, you know, that that makes this look like a walk in the park, what we're going through now. If you listen to some people like Malcolm and others predict what we're about to go through, maybe we'll start to get there again. In ter- it is connected. And you hear this phrase petrodollar. I just don't know enough to speak too informed about it. But but these things are all connected, and it is this WTF 1971. There is a break point. You know, I don't want to say, oh, the EPA is this boogeyman that's responsible for all of it, but it is a perfect emblem of the shift that's happening in a lot of areas at the same time. Right. Nixon Nixon imposed a price ceiling on oil in 1971 as demand for oil was increasing and production was declining, mm-hmm. which increased dependence on foreign oil imports as consumption bolstered by. In 1973, Nixon announced the end of the quota system. Between 1970 and 1973, U.S. imports of crude had nearly doubled. Oh, blah. So, uh, 1970. Uh, okay. So basically, uh, you know, he 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 tried to play hardball with with uh, the Middle East. He told them, uh, "We're gonna we're we won't pay over X amount." And I guess this is when um, OPEC said, "Okay, shut it down." It, it certainly all happened in that same early 70s to mid 70s mix. There's a David Frum, who, you know, we're all probably not the biggest fans of, but he did write one really good book. It's called How We Got Here, the 1970s, the decade that brought you modern life for better or worse. And that one's worth looking at because he really is just saying this is when everything, whether you like it or hate it, this was when everything changed and it changed really, really quick. And for me, the perfect emblem of that. Have you ever seen a picture of Dick Cheney and Donald Rumsfeld when they were both very young men working in the Nixon White House? Yeah. They have big sideburns. They're wearing like psychedelic ties, right? So this is, you know, these are the most, by the, you know, they're not not the most right-wing guys on earth, but they're probably the most right-wing guys in the federal government at that time. And even they look a lot more like Shaggy from Scooby-Doo than they do like, uh, you know, the, the man in the gray flannel suit paradigm 10, 15 years earlier. So whether it's in society, the way people dress, the music, or in these Game of Thrones, where's the energy coming from? Who's paying for it? Who's flexing militarily? Uh, the, 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 the changes in the very late 60s, early 70s seem almost as big as, in some ways, the 1930s, 1940s changes, which is why I'd want to give 
cut Reagan a little slack in terms of if we see it of the context of where that could have gone, maybe he bent it in a better direction than it otherwise would have gone had he not been the guy at the helm in the next decade. Well, I mean, and just for just for a note, the 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 oil crisis wasn't like a dispute over how much the United States should be paying for oil. It was explicitly a foreign policy tool. The, the king of Saudi Arabia embargoed well, I mean, so oil exports to the United States. Well, listen to this. In September 1971, OPEC issued, by the way, you know, in the classic cars, there's uh, 71 cars and there's 71.5 cars. And this is, I think, <laughs> in, in September 1971, OPEC issued a joint communique stating that from then on, they would price oil in terms of a fixed amount of gold. Uh, and I, I think this is where, uh, you know, Nixon said, well, <laughs> F you, uh, and then, uh, everything went, went, went down. Okay. But the, yeah, but that makes it sound like to the listener that might make it sound like we went from, Oh, we're, we're, these are, we're selling it in dollars to we want to sell it in gold. But like before 1971 selling in dollars and selling in gold were the technically the same, same thing. thing. Right. So, well, so, well, so, so it's like, to, to, but, for your the point, oil, the oil crisis was explicitly they embargoed because of our we 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 did the Ukraine thing to Israel and in, in the in there in the war in seventy three right and right so yeah, they, th- this is your point and this this is why this is so this is so uh, we're looking at the same thing right now and uh, and we're going to have hard times in America because of it. Arab oil producing company countries had attempted to use oil as leverage to influence political events on two prior occasions. The first was Suez in 56. Let's see. The second was the Trans-Arabia. The second instance was when Egypt and Israel uh, fought in 67. And so, uh, you know, we need help winning this war or you're going to look the other way, et cetera. This is exactly what we're seeing uh, Russia do today, right? And, and yeah. withhold the oil. And yes, and to analogize it back to the Roman model, you know, Pache Smil, I think it's still fun to play around with it like this. Uh, it'd be the breadbasket, it'd be the food coming from their province of Africa, but also especially Egypt. And if you didn't get, until my namesake, the Emperor Claudius, stabilized the harbor and kind of did some couple other things, it was touch and go. And if you didn't get enough of these grain boats coming from Egypt to Rome, the plebs would be starving and it would be hard times. And, you know, the whole thing, the wheels were constantly threatening to come off until they got that grain shipment coming regularly. The difference is Egypt was not, as far as I know, you, you know, the Ptolemaic Egypt was not trying to flex with it as a concern, you know, to cut people off. That's just I, I'm not aware of anything that parallels the OPEC kind of trying to turn the spigot off sort of thing. But the potential is there. I think the little well, nice synthesis of what we've been talking about is say that the food of pre-industrial society is food and the food of industrial society is fossil fuels. And, and it is how woven fossil fuels are into all aspects of modern life, including stuff that we don't think about. So plastic and plastic is, is, is made from throwing. So, you, you know, if, if you're keeping it in the ground, right, keep it in the ground is the motto of at least the harder edge of the green movement. Maybe the main, maybe just mainstream Democrats at this point. Do they also want to go back to using glass or paper uh, for, for all containers, et cetera? Maybe they do. I don't know. But but I don't think people have thought out what that would look like. My it, I always think of this uh, in terms of your literal you know, deodorant. You go buy deodorant at the gas station or whatever. It's in this little plastic thing. 
I always think about this with Woodstock, because when I look at images of Woodstock in 1969, that was before most people would be carrying around little tins of deodorant with them and plastic and stuff. I must have smelled pretty bad is always is always the thing. (laughs) And, And a lot of these conveniences are tied up in it. It's so pervasive. And you know, you guys know Chris Hayes. He's the guy in MSNBC <laughs> that used yeah. to used to uh, uh, be the intro for Maddow, and I guess now he's the, oh yeah now he's anchoring it. So he wrote. Did you ever happen to see an article he wrote in the Nation back in when is this? Let me pull this up in 2014. This was a very very interesting article he wrote because the point. So it's called the New Abolitionism. Averting planetary disaster, the subhead is, averting planetary disaster will mean forcing fossil fuel companies to give up at least $10 trillion in wealth. And what he's saying to his fellow, you know, lefties and and greenies is, yeah, climate change is going to kill us all. Yeah, we got to do this. But don't underestimate the stake of the request here. And he says the only parallel, the only precedent, for demanding, as he sees it, the Illuminati that run the world. That's his model is that, you know, the Monopoly guy, the oil guys are still running the world in Chris Hayes' mind, trying to get them to just give up trillions of dollars of undeveloped potential wealth. He likens that to the abolition movement, which is, (laughs) you know, it's a provocative stance. It's an interesting thing to think about. Um, And it shocked me, you know, he wrote this in 2014 at a time when I think the more mainstream democratic thing would have been, nah, we'll work it all out. We got to get some windmills, but you know, you'll barely notice, right? You'll like it even better than before. The eternal progressive, a termite that looks, who's looking up and saying, Hey, look, there's a bunch of wealth that we can eat. We can consume and turn into a nest for, you know, for, for the larva. Like, that's what it is. And uh, I, I won't, I, 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 I won't go into this, but it's like, uh, I used to think that perhaps this this is a development that happened like after the Civil War and after abolitionism, like the abolitionism was like a, a, a genuine like social revolution or whatever, right? The, the abolitionists were just what 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 what's written on the tin. They were people who wanted to abolish slavery. I, I don't I don't I don't I, I no longer think that. I think that this has always been like, hey. Here's a way we can get a little bit more power for ourselves. Well, not a little bit, a lot. Here's a way we can we can take this shit over. Not, and I know that's what Chris Hayes thinks when he looks at Exxon. Look at all this money we could. Look at all this wealth that we could steal right here, right now. It, it's it's one of the biggest pots left, you know, on the table. We can just steal this for ourselves and make ourselves more more powerful and wealthy. Well, yeah. isn't always both that you've got a lot of well-meaning people who see whatever it is and say, "Oh, it's awful." And then you have some other people who say, yeah, it is. And those people's agenda may be completely different. Yeah, it's a chicken and egg thing. And I, I, I ranted about this to Fredo and Bog Beef when we were t- I was talking about how the Justice Department, I, you probably knew this already. I had no idea until I was reading. I was reading something the other day. The Justice Department exists because of, the, of Reconstruction. The entire the, the like the concept of having a Department of Justice only happened because they needed a way to enforce quote unquote civil rights laws on the South. Before before that, there was no justice. There was no such thing as a justice department. There, there was not right. That's that's my basic understanding of it. I mean, before Reconstruction, 
and before and certainly before the progressive era, what did the federal government do? Yeah, it 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 in the main and and the majority of federal jobs were in the postal system. I think until World War One, certainly until very late. I mean, you, not counting an army when you raise an army, but but you know, sort of the civilian jobs. What was the post office? And it's funny, the EPA's headquarters now in D.C. were originally built for the postmaster general in the twenties, I believe, back when that was still kind of the crown jewel of the whole patronage thing, because you could hand out however many good jobs, right, across the country. And it is a palace. It is over the columns and marble. I mean, it is an extremely, extremely, extremely fancy building. They used to be in some swing space in what was then a pretty shabby area of D.C. and kind of not very nice quarters, not very safe quarters even at all. And then I think late Clinton, uh, they were moved, and it's called the William J. Clinton Building now. As far as I know, it's the only thing in D.C. that's named after him is where the EPA's headquarters is now. But it used to be the post, uh, the postmaster's palace, more or less. Yeah, back when the federal government was like, uh, I mean, you can never say there was a moment when the federal government operated as it was intended to operate. That's not the point. But back when the, the mandate of the federal government was closer to something that like Thomas Jefferson would recognize. Yeah, he's saying, but that that definitely this this is why the very first thing we talked about was like the era of the United States. So you can quibble about whether or not the Articles of Confederation should be its own thing. But one thing's for absolute sure. After the Civil War, the United States did – I've bombastically made this claim many times. Like as time goes on, I feel like this is – it's gone from being kind of a meme that I would say to something that I think is actually 100% accurate. The, The United States ended in 1865. Like we we are what came after that was a new revolutionary nation, right? A revolutionary state. So something, something closer to the French revolution. The second, than just, the second Republic. That's that 2.0 yeah. that you're talking about. Yeah. And, and this is the big, this is the beginning of, of that. Uh, maybe not the beginning, like before, before 1865 and like even after 1865, well into the late 19th century, whether or not the government should be in the business of building a canal was a spicy subject. And how insane does that sound today? Like, is is it correct for the for the for the government to 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 do these infrastructure projects? Isn't that really something we should leave to to private citizens? We're going to have to pay for this with the tax or whatever, and we would hate to do that. And this, it, it's it's so funny when you think about the way they viewed government in the 19th century versus the way we do today, which is that this this thing that just keeps cons- just has a, a, a endless appetite for, for, for more wealth from everybody. And uh, but, but you know, do, do, do you mark, do you see the jump? From, so well, let's say pre constitution is the zero that's, that's stage zero. So whether it's officially one of them or not, that's we'll say 1.0 is 1789 to civil war reconstruction. 2.0 is, End of the 1900s, begin, end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, and then 3.0, and maybe civil rights is a 4.0. That in the second one, it's about expanding the geographic scope of the power, whether it's putting down the rebellion, secession, independence, whatever you want to call it, whether it's pushing west, the Department of the Interior, you know, sort of, sort of taking over what was what was the nomadic kind of Indian area. 
uh, Spanish-American War, like we talked about last time, going global. But then the more FDR reboot is going down. It's drilling down and controlling more and more aspects of what would have been left up to state and local life. Yes, but yes, I do agree with that. However, with a caveat that I don't think this was like a change in doctrine. I think that in 1865, the, the libs in charge, if they could have done what FDR did, they would have, if they had the power to do that. And they were in like the the whole debate, you know, the whole, if you say the meme term radical Republican in history, in history book, I, I guess today that has a different connotation. But when we went to school, there was a, there was a term radical Republican and it meant something very specific. It meant people who wanted to enact, I won't say proto FDR, proto FDR, the, the Morgenthau plan, but for the South. Yes. The Morgenthau plan for the South, the people who just, who wanted, who wanted to create the total state, a hundred years earlier than it, than it actually came to fruition. So these people wanted to do that, but they had they had two problems. One, you had this massive this massive frontier that people could always just say, "Well, you know what? Fuck you. I don't like I don't like how you run New York. I'm going to Oklahoma. I'm going to Oregon. Whatever." So you could do that. So the, it was in, functionally impossible. And you also had there were still existing power structures even after the Civil War that would prevent this from happening. Like states. States still viewed themselves as states at that at that point, so like they couldn't do the things that they wanted to do. What what the the pump was primed over the next uh, seventy years, whatever. And then when FDR comes along, he comes along in what you refer to as one of those constitutional moments. There's a there's a breakdown. There's problems. And hey, we have a solution, and that solution is you need to finally let us off the chain and let us do the things that we've been championing the bit to do. For almost a hundred years, all the, like the if you if put me in coach, if you let the if you let us grow the state to encompass everything, then we can fix all these problems. And uh, you know, like I really I really like Yarvin on this. He 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 wrote a lot a lot of stuff he wrote in two thousand seven, and I understand in the context of like the Obama election, I get why he did that. But he wrote a lot about FDR and how essentially FDR lied about his in his campaign and then fundamentally changed the country once he got into office like he he, he did he did fdr did things that are wild that we don't think about today like uh confiscating all the gold of, <laughs> of private of, of private citizens and and you know, private companies and in the united states that's pretty crazy if you think about it like, and I, I never, entire ethnic groups, although we didn't do that until the war started. But yeah, but that's true. But like that, whatever. Like everybody knows aggra- that he was he was aggressive across the board. Is my point. Right, right. But what, here, here. But that's a good point because like everybody knows about the internment camps because like this is a problem that this this fits into the narrative of the people who run the country now. They want you to, to think to, to know about the sins of the past. The, like the the confiscation of gold thing. I, I honestly had no idea that 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 happened until like I don't know a couple of years ago when I read it. it. It was like we just we just skimmed over that entirely. But anyway, I'm, I'm getting off topic. The point here is they would have done this if they could. They had structural problems. The FDR era gave them two things they needed. One, again, Macassus Belly, the the Great Depression, which funny enough, there are there is a reading of economic history that says that this is this was created by these very same people because of their banking policies whatever i don't know i'm not going to go into that 
you had the Cassis Belly. You have a much more connected society from, from just because of, because of uh, the rise of technology, the rise of travel. You the the borders have, the frontiers have been closed off for a good thirty years by this point. There's no there's no more there's nowhere to run anymore. So now you've got this lockdown, and you can finally create the the heaven on earth that you, that they always wanted to. And we, I, I would have said before we've lived in that sense, but I think that my colleague was right, that we need to make another break in 65 or whatever for the civil rights, the civil rights era. Cause that's like really when they, when they com- took complete control. Well, and that's what's so interesting about how this guy developed these theories. This guy Ackerman, I was talking about, he comes out with the first and second volume of his theories, I think in the eighties. And he's mapping out, you know, there he says, clearly it's revolution, reconstruction, FDR. He gets criticized for his theory doesn't encompass civil rights. He comes out with this theory. He has to modify it because in the earlier ones, he's really talking about an appeal to popular electoralism. Give me huge majorities. Give me all three, you know, give me uh, House, Senate and president. Blow the doors off electorally. Well, you could argue that that happened in the 64 election with the huge uh, victory for LBJ and the complete repudiation of Goldwater, who had opposed the Civil Rights Act, but it's coming heavily from the judiciary. And so he has to kind of you know bring that into his model. Well, he's just saying what Caldwell said a couple of years ago, but it's just boo hooray, right? He says, this is great. We have a new, con- we have a new yeah. constitutional reboot. Caldwell says we had a new constitutional reboot and it's awful, but, but you know, they're, they're both seeing and describing the same thing. They're just putting a completely different value on it. And it's kind of analogous to energy where, like you're saying, they didn't have the, to be pretentious about it, social technology in 1865, 1876, than they do in 1933, 1945. Uh, You're standing on the shoulders. That's why it's like the game Civilization. You have the tech tree and you got to, there's no uh, easy button that lets you skip five levels ahead. You got to painfully go through all of those levels. I got a, a question about the civil rights thing. Um, one, you know, we we saw the uh, the Republicans in the past couple of years. Um, the, the strongest part of the Republican, uh, like the Republican meat and potatoes political machine, I think we would say would be like uh, uh, guns and abortion, like in terms of. Um, you know, they got people working like uh, I really like the 2A movement. And I know that the 2A movement, like there's lots of people working on my behalf in the 2A movement. And and uh, so a lot of like the, the real smart in, uh, legislation stuff that the right does comes out of these things. And I know one of the, the uh, we saw this thing. I can't remember exactly what it was done, but the right wing did this thing. Uh, I guess, I don't know, in the past, like five or six years where they, they okay, let me go back to, um, What's the uh, the disability law? American with Disability Act, nineteen ninety, I think. Okay, right, and you know the ADA. It had this very peculiar enforcement way, where instead of like, uh, well, this is illegal, and because it's illegal, police come arrest or you're fined by a by a bureaucrat or something. He said, no, we're not going to do that. Instead, um, you go take someone to court if they violate this law. Like you, not the police, but like you go take them to a, uh, 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 uh go take them to court. Yes. And, and then, uh, this and then you, a, you a, t- pri- a private right of action. 
not just the eight, the attorney general is not going to be the only one enforcing it or even the main one enforcing it. It's going to be someone who feels they've been discriminated against or just someone who's a citizen who doesn't like what's going on. Right. And so, and like, you know, this, I mean, uh, so, you know, from my standpoint, I'm like, wow, this is really bizarre because normally, you know, the law is like, uh, you know, the, the, the police and the, the district attorney, this, this is like, we have a law, but the law sort of, uh, allows you to do this. I remember there was this huge freak out when the right sort of used this a couple of years ago. It was something like, um, you know, if you, if you have, uh, I don't know if you felt, reg- I, I, this is not what it was, but it's like, I, I guess if you re- felt regret over abortion, you could sue the guy or something, which, uh, first off, was this unprecedented at the, the, the start of ADA? And, um, I mean, th- this is like, uh, you know, these things people talk about, like, um, liberalism is this liberalism is that like, I don't really care. I, I'm the kind of person I will use whatever words where I, I I'm, 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 I'm not a word stickler. So I'll, I'll, I'll be, uh, uh, free about this kind of thing. But, you know, we talk about like, uh, liberalism and stuff like that. Once you have civil rights, I mean, it's so much different than like equality under the law that we're talking about a different thing. But was this thing with the ADA, was that brand new? Where did no. they come up with this? No, it's not. Where, it's not completely new, although they did. You, my, my understanding is they did sort of supercharge it, but it's not completely new. Uh, the the major environmental laws that are passed starting under Nixon, the Clean Air Act and the Clean Water Act have a similar thing in them where it's not just the EPA coming and enforcing against you. The Sierra Club or whoever it is can uh, bring a, what's called a citizen suit is what is what people in the in the business call it uh, against either the EPA if they think the EPA isn't doing something that it is supposed to be doing under the law, or a company or anybody else that they say is violating any aspect of environmental laws or regulations or permits, and it happens all the time. I mean, you have right now. I'm just making it up, but you have probably easily a couple hundred of those kinds of cases working their way through the courts at one time or another. But it was, uh, the ADA is often pointed to like this. I don't know enough of the details about the, the Disabilities Act, but there there has to be some innovative or at least more aggressive aspect to it, but wasn't completely new. It goes back to an older idea. There's this, and it's one of these Latin phrases called key tom, which is Q-U-I-T-A-M. And I'm cheating here. I'm reading from the internet here, but uh, the Latin phrase is quitam pro domino reggae quam pro se ipso in hoc parte sequitur, which is basically if you're suing on behalf of the king, uh, uh, you, you're sort of suing on your own behalf. So the idea is that there is a tradition. I mean, this phrase is old enough that there's an idea that in some context, at least a non-governmental person, I'm not the prosecutor, I'm not the chief DA or whatever, I can come in and sort of stand in the shoes of the government. Areas where you see this now in the law, there's the False Claims Act, which is anybody who makes a false claim to the government, including to get paid. If you lie, you can be whacked and you have this triple penalties. This is a strong incentive to get people to sue is you get treble damages. So if I figure out, okay, you rip the government off for a million, well, you got to pay them back three million. And the private person, I think, gets to keep at least some of that who initiates it. So it's not completely new but it keeps expanding the use of it. And you're right. uh, There was a Texas law is still a Texas law saying uh, private enforcement, basically for, for certain abortion things. Uh, And this uh, provoked a very, very negative reaction, went all the way up to the Supreme court pretty quickly. And then the threat was during the argument there, 
about the Texas law in the Supreme Court, the Democratic appointed justices kept saying, well, what about guns? What if they did this with guns? What if California says, hey, anybody can drop a dime and say, I think someone's violating California's laws and, and privately prosecuted. And the guy arguing on behalf said, yeah, that's fine. My theory does not depend on the kind of right that's at issue. You, you can do this. And, and it's sort of a, a force field uh, uh, because no prosecutor has to be actually doing it. This is before Roe was overturned. But he was saying even under Roe, as long as once you set the law up, it's not the DA or whoever has to come and actually prosecute. It's just Joe Schmo. No, no, no. You can't touch us constitutionally. But I think you'll see Gavin Newsom and others really try to take that and bend it in the other direction. now. Well, I mean, so th- this is like, um, you know, the right should use this. I mean, it, it, as a matter of fact, like a normal law is like, you know, who cares? It doesn't matter at all anymore. Uh, like, you know, you could write a law is is the district attorney in 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 San Francisco going to, uh you know, enforce it or whatever? You know, of course not. But this this particular uh, trick is like it's I mean, it's solid gold. Every organization like immediately respects that all their lawyers are uh, I mean, because uh, this this is a totally insane thing. The right should use it. I mean, however, like it, this is something we should, uh, you know, it should be negotiated out because, of course, it can't. Uh, this is a, this is a, um, I mean, this, this is like a, a totally insane thing, right? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's one, I mean, I guess one of the things that's so weird about it and so bad is that, like, why is this so much more powerful than a, than a law enforced by the government? I mean, the, isn't this a strange thing? It's very Roman, I'll say that. This is a, a yes. one of the worst parts of Roman society was the you were being dragged and the Greek and the ancient Greeks too. You'd be dragged in the court constantly by other people over over dumb bullshit. Yes, they didn't over and over and over again. Yeah, they didn't have a state in the sense that we think of it. And so you're exactly right, Merrick. Whether it's in Athens in the fifth century and fourth century BC, or whether it's Cicero, a lot of what Cicero is doing is either suing or defending people. For in his famous speeches, you know, it's murder charges sometimes, right? It's stuff that we would think, okay, this is the government's job. It was uh, a la carte and it was entrepreneurial in the ancient world where just one, you know, you'd go to a lawyer and you'd say, hey, that guy killed my brother, go get him. And they would be the one to bring the prosecution. It's, it's, it's very hard for us to get our heads around it. Although it's less difficult now, Bog, like you're saying, someone a hundred years ago in America would probably have a harder time understanding that than someone now, because because we have such a hyper litigious and a privatized way to do it in some ways now. Can we? There's something I wanted to um, to kind of try to connect these threads. Mark, you had talked about the frontier being a reason why earlier crackdowns or whatever you want to call it couldn't really be total. Is because someone who just say screw you, I'm I'm gonna light out for the territories. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think that there's still a flavor of that with cars, with gas, with the price of gas? Do you see where I'm going with this? Absolutely, they absolutely despise. That's just the reason they despise cars because if <laughs> it's like the meme with a car, you can go anywhere, right? You can you you can actually if if you want to, for example drive two hours every day to work so you don't have to send your kids to uh, to a zoo for, for public schooling, then you can do that. And you don't have that. If you don't have that choice, 
you know, you are literally at the mercy of urban planners at that point. They're going to decide everything about you. This is why this is why busing was such a contentious issue in in the in the sixties and seventies, right? Because you, this is it was undoing that choice. It was overriding right, that choice and that and that ability to disperse. And then we saw the, <laughs> the reaction to that. Which was okay. Well, fuck you. I'm going to leave Boston, and I'm going to I'm going to go move out in the suburbs, or I'm going to move somewhere else. And this is just this is what yeah, I, absolutely. This is the last the last gasp of like of frontier frontier America that you can just pick up and you can go move to a place that is more your speed. And this uh, yeah, this was um I was thinking about this earlier today, like uh, uh, a weird example. So um working on a car the machine shop in town is is closed down so it's like well i would need uh you know if, if i was going to get this motor board over or something i'd have to uh take it to a machine shop it's like well like i like it's within my power like I, i'm not i'm not that powerful of a man but um i can get a 700 pound motor to jacksonville like <laughs> like I, I could like i could have it there tonight <laughs> you know what I, mean? I, I could throw i could throw one in the back of a truck and get on get on my my well paved highway in Florida and uh, and do that. You know I, I I don't I don't maybe someone like if someone in Manhattan could they move seven hundred pounds to to Philadelphia <laughs> in the evening? Maybe you ever they see could. a talk about getting groceries? It's hilarious. <laughs> it was, uh, uh, do you remember? Do you guys know John Ekdahl? He was part of the Ace of Spades crew back in the day, and he tweets. Uh, he tweeted back in I think twenty sixteen or twenty seventeen. I wonder how many mainstream media reporters know someone who owns a truck and <laughs> man, he poked the hive. Like there are still people complaining about that, you know, seven, uh, six or seven years after he said it originally, but it gets to this pattern we're talking about uh, of, you know, urban and the most urban versus everything else. And the complaining about the large cars and trucks uh, is pretty much nonstop in, in, in mainstream and, and, and left-wing discourse these, these days. They, they my don't truck like- makes me powerful. You don't know the things my truck does. I mean, my truck has a normal outlet, like someone's house. Like they would have to pay rent in. I could live out of my truck for months. It, it, it is. I mean, it is no accident that car nuts were not a thing, but truck nuts were a thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, because if you've ever been in the misfortune, in the misfortune, like owning a car but not having access to a truck, it's totally different. I mean. You're obviously better off than people who don't have a car at all, but you, there's just a lot of stuff that you can't, you literally can't do. You have to ask somebody to, to you know, whatever. My point was, uh, yeah, they absolutely do hate trucks. Uh, they hate, they hate, ve- they hate vehicles. They hate the independence that comes with, with driving a vehicle because that means that you can't be completely, like you can't be controlled. They don't like that. That this is a, this is why that they have this almost totemic reaction to the big trucks and all these threads about does anybody really need uh, a, a, a f-150 this, this is, is, do you see how tall look how, this is me standing in front of an f-150 look how tall it is i was very scared it was like it was a, it was terrifying yeah and i so i've i've never owned a truck and i mean in a lot of ways i i the you know person living in the city and kind of things outside the city being scary and unknown to them. I'm kind of in that box. I just don't come at it in a hostile perspective. I come at it more Chesterton's fest. This stuff seems really important and we should probably shouldn't try to suppress it and get rid of it all because it's what's supporting the rest of society. 
but I do have a minivan, right? Because you know I have multiple kids, and so I move them around. So at least that's that's larger than a Mister Bean car. Uh, <laughs> the 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 uh, the sheer amount, yeah. That that issue more than anything else uh, uh, really does seem to get people frothing. Do you think is it accurate to say maybe not in the past, but now? that what I'll call, for lack of a better term, I'll call it tight energy versus loose energy or expensive energy versus cheap energy. Is that one of the major dividing lines of our politics today? I don't know if it is, but it probably should be. And I will just, just before we abandon the truck thing completely, just say, like, you know, we should look accurate. Yeah, you probably don't need a truck, you know, you, 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 in everyday life. And this is the thing... When they talk about we should get rid, we should bet that what they when they when you see those tweets and stuff, what they're you, really you saying get is a truck. You should get a truck. What, what what they're really saying is and is we should ban this. We should make it so you, you're not allowed to have this anymore. Nobody should have a, a truck. Nobody. We need every vehicle to be a little a little gay EV egg, right? This is what how things should work. That you could do that if and only if you you think that things are going to either stay the same or get better. Pro- really for EVs, we have to get like, we have to be much better at our, like, our electric grid infrastructure f- for them to work. So you're making a, when you, when you say, I don't, I don't, I want a world without cars. You're making a bet. And that bet is we are going to either maintain the level of complexity in our society that we have now, or we're going to increase it successfully. If you don't agree with that, if you think that not only is it not going to get better, but it's going to get worse and then perhaps have to return to a previous level of complexity, then you absolutely should have a fucking truck. You should get a truck. Go buy a truck. <laughs> maybe not. I mean, I mean, actually, we'll say maybe not now, but uh, who knows if the prices of, the, of vehicles are ever going to go down again. If I read your guys' feed or Mork or whatever, I'm like, it's too late. It's over. Like I probably, you know, I probably should have gotten a truck ten years ago. <laughs> you you can probably get a truck um, just by the, uh, the the quantity and stuff. And even uh, a lot of the problems with repairing vehicles is not really true for trucks, just because um, uh, there there is so many that um, that they do keep parts around. You guys ever heard of hot shot trucking? No, what's that? Hot shot trucking. No. So if I lost my job tomorrow, I could be a trucker. They have the thing called hot shot trucking. So my, uh, my truck will haul, I, I could pull 15,000 pounds, 15,000 pounds, uh, you know, with the tow hitch, uh, behind it. They have a thing called hot shot towing, which is in, in like, like if you think about primitively, it's like, um, can you move 15,000 pounds from A to B? Okay. You're hired. You could do that with a, you could do that with F two fifty. Uh, you're a trucker. This is like Uber for trucks. Yeah, it, it, like uh, in the oil. This like uh, it's most well known from the oil field and stuff because there's so much time sensitive. We need uh, you know, we need uh, you know, some tool or something to get out there right away. You don't get a semi. You, you just get a hot shot. But yeah, but the, my my view of trucks, I guess, is kind of like my view of guns. So I'm not armed either. But I like the fact that people out in society are for a bunch of reasons. One. If 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 people who might want to break into your house know that at least some percentage of the mm-hmm. people in your area, right? So it's an ambient, you know, it's a you got herd immunity, yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> it's like secondhand smoke. It's, it's like it's like a, a an indirect and and sort of the same thing with the trucks, right? I, you're probably right, Bog. I probably should get one, but even if I don't, if enough 
if there are enough serious vehicles in private hands in a well-distributed way, it's an insurance policy even for the bug men like me who you know have decided to live the, the, the untruckless life. Uh, and I think in this context of you know Dunkirk and the the kind of home fleet of all the little the little boats and and yachts and dinghies and stuff that went to pick the guys up in Dunkirk, uh, a, a sort of domestic version of that. If stuff ever gets raw, I mean that that's what that's what the Mad Max franchise is kind of all about, taken to the extreme, right? Is is that, and it seems like some of the more intense policy agenda of get off fossil fuels entirely, uh, get rid of the internal combustion engine, maybe even get rid of the model of individual car ownership. Uh, that is really burning your boats. And yes, that. Mm. You, that's that man. You stole you stole my analogy. I was going to say what they're going to do, what they're trying to do, or or, or leaning towards is that with the EV thing is they want to do another cash for clunkers where they can just destroy every in, old internal combustion engine vehicle until we have nothing left but EVs. But beca- because there won't, the, we're not going to have the grid to to run the EVs like we run internal combustion engines. They're essentially it's Cortez burning the boats behind us. They're going to destroy our ability to do this and then. Act pretend like they didn't realize this is going to happen. You know, whoops, my bad, me a couple. I guess you're just going to have to, you know, live like a, like a euro cell now that now that you don't have means of transportation. And by the way, our friend Claudius here, you know, how the lib say like if a person doesn't have a home, they're unhoused. He's untrucked. That's how we should refer to these to these people from now. On. We need to do something about this. I, I yes, we need to do something about uh, this. We need some. Yeah, I'm gonna help you out here. By the way, and by the way, I'm not a truck. I'm not really a truck person naturally. I like fast cars more than I like trucks. But however, <clears throat> have you been have you been into a late model like F one fifty? Yes. No, I have not. Okay. Uh if you if you you what you need to do if you do get shopping for a vehicle, go to like the Ford dealership and uh you, you look at like a King Ranch or something. The King Ranch, because you, you don't know how awesome these trucks are now. So um you go to an average King Ranch. It's like what sixty thousand uh, dollars. The seats are the. the you got to make sure you whatever you uh, you want something with captain seats. You just sit in it, check it out. So if you get the like the King Ranch Ford, like sixty thousand um, dollars, you're gonna have these captain seats. They're the most enormous, awesome seats you've ever seen. They're heated and cooled. I don't even know how they do that. Cooled I don't know seats. How you, I don't, cooled yeah. seats. I've never heard of cooled seats. That's amazing. I, I don't know how they do it, but they do it. Um, the, I mean, the ins, like the inside of this. With you, if you get, the, if you get the crew cab, it's like, it's like, it's like your living room. Uh, I mean, you, you could like the center console. You could put like a, um, like a 19th century anvil in there and have have plenty of room in there. Um, it, they're just awesome. So that's what if, if you ever get looking for another car, go look at F one fifty King Ranch. Um, you'll see why everybody has the truck. And then by the way, uh, you know, you could, you can, you know, you can pull the RV, you can, you can do all kinds of cool stuff. Do you know, do either of you know the line that Bill Clinton said when he was running for president in 1992 about his truck? Do you know about this? No. So he talked, he talked about two things. One of them was there's a type of hunting, which is sort of like lazy hunting. And I don't know the terminology for this, but where you just turn on your lights and sort of wait for a deer to come by and get startled and then shoot them when they run Spotlight. away. Yeah, he talked about that. Yeah, it's very illegal. So he, yeah. talked, yeah. he talked about doing that, if I'm not mistaken. 
And then and then he talked about how he had AstroTurf laid down in the back in the bed of his truck. And he was, you know, being interviewed or some public event or something. He said, and that was for and then he kind of caught himself and corrected himself and said, well, I shouldn't talk about what that was for. But that's the kind we, <laughs> we we talked about Bill a little bit last time. And that's part of that in personality, which endears him to a lot of people, which which let him get away with murder, basically. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that is funny. Him talking about spotlight because you would not talk about spotlight. And that is uh, game warden will get your ass. <laughs> you do that. If you're the governor, if you're the governor, though, the game warden probably does what you say. <laughs> Did you, uh, you have you ever heard of the RoboBuck, Claudius? The RoboBuck? No, what's that? Did they have a RoboBuck in Florida, Bug Beef? Or is this a Virginia thing? No, we don't. Uh, it, okay, so it's it's illegal to shoot to either spotlight or to just shoot from your vehicle from the from the highway. You're not allowed to do that. You're not allowed to just if you see a deer. You're not allowed to just you know lean out the window and blast just, them. With this is this has a reputation for being some real redneck shit. Like even I mean even a normal redneck would be like, oh, I don't do that. That is yes, that, yeah. Hunters get like redneck. This. Yeah, right. So in it, Virginia, like in the land version of dynamite fishing, basically. Yeah. Yes. This, this, in, the thing is, their their eyes light up like just a little. You can you can see them easy when if you if you spot a light out there because their eyes just just uh, they fire up. You can see them easily with like that. So in Virginia, what the, the game wardens would do at first was they would put up like fake deer, and they would in places where people would do this, and then somebody would shoot the fake deer, and they would arrest. They would you know give them a ticket, whatever, right? But people got wise to that because the fake deer didn't move, so they made a an, an animatronic moving deer. It wasn't like it was like you know walking around, but like you know it would it would turn its head or whatever. Ah. It looked real enough, and this is a thing like where, where somebody would shoot the RoboBuck, and you, that was you would get caught. It was like this technological race with the with the poachers. I just thought it's, I never heard anybody else That's really talk good. about the RoboBuck. So maybe this is like just a Virginia thing. I'm not I'm sure. Googling it, there's videos of let's see, Indiana did one. It looks like so. Yeah, it wasn't just you guys, but uh, amazing. Yeah, oh. so there's uh, yeah. If you Google uh, New Jersey, oh, New Jersey had a robo a robo deer. I guess you don't think of New Jersey as being a big poaching state, but. You know, well, this this is one of part. this is one <laughs> of God's great jokes on uh, the American is that um so like if you go to the South, everybody loves uh, loves hunting. You got a lease, um, guns, wearing um, wearing real tree and stuff like that. But the South has the most pitiful deer on earth. And so like if you want to if you want to hunt if you want to hunt some big old white tail white tail. You want to go like Michigan really? or New York or something. Wow. You know? Why is that? Why is it's this? cold? They get fat. Oh. Uh, okay. But when he says South, you got to understand he means like he means the Gulf. It, yeah. Well, in the deep South, like if you, if you hunt whitetail here or West Virginia, they're, they're decent sized whitetail. They're not like the, some of the, the big stuff you'll see out West. Well, but yeah. Yeah. Right, but, but you're, you're kind of in between. I mean, you, you're, you're a northerner compared to the Gulf, right? I don't, I don't, I know. That's true. He's told me that many times. Yeah. And I, 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 I can't deny it anymore. I had Virginia plates. And the first time I went down to Mississippi, people were like, oh, you're from Virginia. As if they were saying, oh, you're from Canada. Right. It was definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, Yankee alert. But you, so you're, you're just kind of in between. Like if you go, if you go look on one of those like yeah. trophy buck magazine, It'll be like a Michigan whitetail or whatever because it's colder, they get fatter. And yeah, I mean, they're pathetic in Florida. 
Well, we, and we ha- also have a thing very particularly where I live. We're right beside the national park, like the national park. So, like, you get a lot of big fat deer that come down off the mountain and, and they get blasted because they just they moved it out of the gentrified neighborhood into the into the slums of Rockingham County, and it's 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 over quickly. You you ever eat venison, Claudius? Uh, I believe I did because I think a friend's dad. So I grew up in a in you know not a big urban area. I grew up in upstate New York, and uh, a friend's dad would would hunt would make it. So I would have it. I would I've had that a couple times. I don't really remember it very well though. One way or the other, is it good stuff? It is. It is like crack, man. It is so mm-hmm. good. It's especially the, lean and sweet. Yeah, I like the sausage and stuff, but um, uh, salami, dear salami. This yeah, but. This is going to take it on an even worse tangent at an even more right angle. But but what we're talking about now with hunting and deer in the north makes me wonder something. I know we've talked about this before, and you guys have talked about it uh, just generally that you've basically never, almost never been in the north. Either of you is that is that accurate to say or 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 fair to say? I I I took a a, a truck, drove it to. Um, well, I, I haven't really, I, okay. I, I, haven't really. I haven't spent a lot of time, you know, walking the highways spent, and byways and, uh, of the North. A, a week in Kansas outside of that, uh, I went there, got something and left, but do you, I've been to Pennsylvania a couple of times. Okay. Do you think though, is it, you know, there's how to, how to put this. So imagine four people, you have Marek. You have a guy living in Austin who likes the aspects of Austin that you guys might not like. You have, you know, a, a guy, uh, uh, a liberal guy working an office job in Boston or, or Buffalo, New York or wherever. And then you have a guy living in northern Minnesota. You know, rural oh. northern Minnesota. Where well, are the this- differences? Where are the similarities? Where does this overlap? When push comes to shove, is the guy in northern Minnesota lining up with Marek or with the guy in New York city? Well, this, this is what our show is about. And I mean, on, like, uh, so in, by the way, not just our show, you can look at an election map. Rural is rural for yes. the most, for the most part rural, uh, uh, the country boy, uh, was the lyrics of the country boy, uh, can survive. He says, we're in, um, you know, we're in North Alabama, we're in Canada, we're in California, we're everywhere. That, that is rural, which by the way, <clears throat> uh, New Jersey, I mean, one of our best friends is a very, grew up in a very, he grew up in a place like Merrick, but he was in New Jersey in, in the, in the, he was in the mountains in, in a rural, rural area. By the way, there's even more like the other group, which is hard to like, um, it's not like, I, I, I don't have an easy rule for why they do loop in like, uh, especially politically, but look at look at an Italian guy on Long Island. Long mm. Island is turning into like uh, you know um, super Texas or something. Like everybody there is super right wing. I know they used to have a large. Um, that was where they built a lot of the the military toys. That I don't know the tanks and planes and stuff. That was, mm-hmm. uh, but um, like I don't understand like what why does that work? But it does. And and that. You know, if there is, if there should be a recognition that tight energy versus loose energy is one of the defining or should be one of the defining frames we look at it, where it's most biting is in rural or even suburban or exurban versus if you live in a city and you're taking cabs and you're taking subways. 
Is that is that fair that if you're doing a lot of driving every day, you notice right away when the price goes up right away. If you you know, if you're if, if you don't get behind the wheel of a car that often, it might seem totally abstract and you might not even be aware it's happening. There's that and the fact that if, you know, public transit is. The people in New York, they don't even think about that. They're just, are we still making the sandwiches? Yeah, and because it's like the state doesn't subsidize my fuel consumption, but it does subsidize their fuel consumption. So, like, we know money's fake; it's made up. Doesn't so they don't have to think about that. It, it, the the rural versus conservative, like, sorry, the rural versus urban divide. Yes, that is something you can you can t- take to the bank. But uh, there's also something I've noticed has happened in the last few years for people I've known. Mostly online because I don't. I'm sad to say I don't know a lot of like city slickers in real life. We're not. I'm not have a bunch of. I don't have a lot of friends who live in the cities, but I have online friends who did, and a lot of them were like you know big Bernie people, whatever, a big Bernard Sanders fans. And uh, I've noticed that like there's two kinds of those those guys. There are the ones who have been horrified with the with the way things have gone the last few years, and they have either made plans to or made changes in their life that would give them more uh, like what the libs would call agency, right? People picking and saying that I'm going to start carrying a gun and I'm going to do this. I'm going to move here. I'm going to do that. And then people who like went the other direction, which is um, fully into the arms of, of the, of the, the big blue beast. And I think this is like, this is also one of the dividing lines in humans. And I don't know how you can predict it or I don't know what you can do about it, but like there are some people who um, there's no way to say this without without like loaded political baggage, but like they just want to be taken care of. And I don't mean like economically necessarily, like they just want somebody else to do, to, 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 to do the things that you're, that you have to do for yourself. Like, uh, well, I'll just let the state defend me. Yes, you, from, you, from, like, you see this. There's this famous clip again from the '92 campaigns with with the town hall debate that they had with uh, Perot, Bush, and uh, Clinton, where a guy who looks like he is Mike Judge playing one of the weenie liberal characters. I mean, right down to the ponytail and the whole <laughs> thing. Asked a question. He said, basically, "How are you going to?" I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but he said something very close to this. His question to them was, "You know." You're if you're running to be the dad of the country, kind of how are you going to take care of us? You know, tell us it's all going to be okay. What are you going to do for us? Totally taking the JF, you know, say what you will about JFK, but at least JFK's stated message was it's not that kind of party, it's what can you do for everybody else. That's a noble message that, that JFK was giving 30 years later, exactly the way around from a lot of people. Yeah, this is uh, okay. <clears throat> there are people like uh that should live in a highly ordered environment. Uh, however, like in the modern United States, like if you, if you need like living under a high order environment, like for you, that you, that you're not creating yourself because like, by the way, I understand it's, it's hard. Like it's hard to, um, you know, I've heard the, I've heard these people, uh, in the, the liberals in the, the big cities now, like in, in San Francisco, if you're the computer coder, um, they like someone just comes to your house and picks you up at the right time that you need to get to work. Um, and like, you know, I understand. And by the way, but you can do that with those people because they're highly valuable. 
Um, I don't think everybody wants to be, a lot of people want someone to take them to work. I don't know if everybody wants to, to stare at code all day, but we do this rule and we should have this rule for people in the, uh, the active part of the United States military. If you want someone to cook all your food and someone to, uh, here's where you're going to sleep. Um, you're going to move here. You're going to do this. We'll do that. If you're going to be in the United States military for the average citizen, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. However, we're going to do it. You know, so this thing about the rural and the urban, I I have a limited political view because of the patronage thing. So obviously, so I'm not even thinking past the the chicken and the egg part, which is like, well, how did we get here? I just know that now, uh, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people in the Democrat Party probably don't think past oil companies aren't don't give to us. The uh, you know, the rural doesn't give to us. We don't have control in in the in the uh, in the country, like we don't want, like one of the things in the, like when the, the, all the arms of the government that, that sort of urban liberals deal with, you just don't have that in the country, in the country, you go somewhere and they make you a driver's license. And, uh, if you, and if you, uh, you know, get picked up for uh, a DUI, they'll haul you in a, in front of a couple, uh, government police, but you just don't have this big interaction with this machine that would take care of you. And it's that's that goes back to the mobility, to to the dispersal of people. It's the combination of that frontier dispersal, but then when you had a period of relatively cheap energy, mobility, everybody's got a car, is it's not not utopian because nothing's perfect, but you know, it's a very, very appealing balance to a lot of people. Is that era coming to an end? I mean, you see a lot of folks in academia, but not only in academia, a lot of folks in business now openly saying, yes, that era is coming to an end. I want to segue here to a quote. I'm going to do a mystery quote here first. The question remains, will Obama move from a Hoover right, high tax protectionist, slow growth, lower jobs position to a Bush McCain Palin? Lower tax, lower cost energy, high growth job stimulus, Keynesian left position. That sounds kind of nuts in a lot of ways. <laughs> so what that is from, so we started with Bruce Ackerman and these theories of how to big, big structural changes in politics and government happen. Then into Vaclav's smill of is energy the secret key to understand all of you know human history and, and civilization? And the third guy I want to throw in the mix is a guy named Martin Sklar, Martin J. Sklar, S-K-L-A-R. Unlike the other two guys, he, I think, is now dead. And he was a lefty, and I'm talking lefty, not a liberal, not a, you know, he was kind of like David Horowitz, except he didn't flip until much later than David Horowitz did. But he, and I don't know where I came across this book, I read it during Obama's reelect, I think. But he issued a book, I've only had it digitally, I don't know if it's online, called Letters on Obama from the Left. And it is exactly what it sounds like. It's hundreds of pages of letters that he was writing to his you know, comrades and fellow travelers and anybody that he was in contact with, ranting about how much he thought Obama was screwing up. And it's not the major theme of it, but he does keep coming back to this idea of tight energy versus loose energy. And he is, you know, he, he views uh, cheap energy and abundant energy as like a liberating force. 
it, you know, whether it's literally economic growth and jobs or whether, and he, it's more implied, I think we've been fleshing it out, it's just mobility. And you think about the pursuit of happiness, which is supposed to be, you know, your life, your liberty. What's the next thing? It's hard to pursue happiness in a bus, I guess, is what is, is what this view would be. And it's easy. Well, it was originally property, right? It wasn't and, and that the original. Right. And then, and then uh, I thought that sounds a little, a little on the nose there, right? But the shift from property, actually, that's a perfect, perfect framing. Because if it's life, liberty, and property, that you know, property could be. I mean, that's very compatible with the regime where you need to ha- own a certain amount of property in order to be able to vote. But the pursuit of happiness, everybody should be allowed to pursue happiness. Everybody has that was that eudaimonia, right? That good spirit, that good feeling, that flourishing of what it is to be human. Does abundant energy and cheap energy and reliable energy is that a necessary? Uh, element to having the pursuit of happiness as we understand it in the modern world? And if so, where are we headed in that regard? Nowhere good, it looks like. Well, you cheated by saying in the modern world, but for, for them, yes, it is absolutely necessary because here's here's their bargain that they've cut with everybody is that we're going to just, we're going to utterly destroy the basis of humans, of of like human social interaction and we're going to do all this weird stuff, but it's okay because you're going to get more and more wealthy every year. You're going to have more stuff. You're going to, and it's going to, you're just going to be, you're going to be happy enough that you're going to go along with it. Your kids will, your kids will grow up and they'll be richer than you. They'll be a better position. Yeah. They might uh, have pink hair and they might decide to change their sex, but like they'll, they'll be better off than you were. This is the bargain. And this is, it's, it's, it's worked out well for them for the last, like we'll say, 50 years, right? It, it, it's, it, 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 it's, it's worked. The thing is that requires this cheap, the cheap energy you're talking about. You have to have this. This is the, the cornerstone of like industrial slash consumer society like in, in modern times. And uh, if they don't have that anymore, then they actually, they, they, right now they, it doesn't mean they can offer that those goodies anymore. If they get an energy, a real sustained energy crunch going along with it, not only can they not do that, they're not going to survive. Their regime is not going to survive in the form that exists now. They just can't. You'll have to either become something more more traditional 20th century or vanish into the ether. But this is kind of a good, this is kind of a good, so I want to loop back to something Bogby said. I didn't want to interrupt at the time when you're talking about ordered society in the context of the previous topic don't confuse order with this because here's the thing you you have you had two frontiers in america you had what was originally called the west which would be like things to the east of the mississippi river midwest now we call it yeah, yeah, and, and you know, and even my part of Virginia was part of the West at one point, right? Well, Jefferson says, the, "I live on the frontier of civilization." Right? He's talking about Charlottesville, and he was living in Charlottesville. Yeah, so at that time, you had hostile natives who would do raids, and there would be there would be fighting, and there would be some crime, but like these places weren't um, the Wild West because what were people doing? They were moving there to settle down in the uh, agrarian communities. And they were extremely well ordered, even though there was in a lot of these places, 
no official law at the time. They were very, very ordered people. They had a very orderly society. It, it wasn't necessary. This thing wasn't necessary. You look at the counterexample, you go out west during the gold rush. Uh, it's famous for being lawless, disgusting, violent. Why is that? Well, what were those people coming there for? They were coming there to extract wealth quickly. They weren't coming there to, to settle down and put down, you know, their, their, a nice little farm well, they, and grow they were wheat. probably 20 to one men, if not a hundred to one men too. And that, that's no way to, you know, that, that's not a recipe for any kind of stability. Yeah. yeah. And they were there to pillage. They were there to pillage this, this, get this money and then maybe settle down afterwards. But this is the point. The point, my point being was don't ever mistake what they're offering with order or think that it is, they're the same thing. They're two different, they're two it's different regi- regimentation from, yeah, from the right. top. Yes. And, and let's let's it, talk oh. about some different types of people here. So first off, let's talk about imagine being a slave in the antebellum cell. Now imagine being a, uh, imagine being one of these, these, these high value coders in, in San Francisco or whatever. Someone comes and picks you up at your work. Um, you know, they, uh, they, they have toiletries there. They're, they're going to cook your food for you. Um, at, at 11 PM, that's when we go exercise. Um, go with the other extra group. Matt and Alice go to a, like a United States Marine or something. They, let's say they don't have, um, even if they had like a, you wake, everyone gets up at seven o'clock. We're going to go run, go to the chow hall. Someone else cook for you. You're going to do this and you're going to do that. Um, the, the, uh, or you're, you're, a, you're a prison inmate. And I saw, I was watching an interview of a, of a, of a, a guy that did a mob guy. He's talking about prison. And he said like, um, you know, one of the reasons I went to prison was that I didn't follow the rules of society. However, when you, you realize when you get to prison, there are way more rules in prison than there are in mainstream society. Like, you know, uh, the, there's the, just the rules from the warden, but then like, you can't do this, you can't do that, you know, uh, or you'll piss off the other gangs. So beat right. you up. And so th- these are all, I mean, so this isn't like order in the, the, and uh, like you said, this is regiments or whatever. Like the there are, is, if you have a big enough problem with authority, sooner or later you'll end up in a place where you have the most extreme force of authority imposed on. Yes. And so these, you know, uh, there are some like there are there are probably even good people who can only thrive in these environments. You know, they they um like they're just never going to be able to get themselves up at seven o'clock in the morning. But all these kinds of things, you know, this thing of like someone taking care of you. Now, you notice in all these these different scenarios that people are taking care of you. Someone's taking care of you in the antebellum South because you're 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 a slave. You're a slave. You're a farm. You're farm equipment to them. Someone's taking care of you in, Sil- in Silicon Valley because they're making a ton of money off of your your coding. They're like all of this is like is super bad. Like the the only person that's really going to take care of you in this kind of way is like your parents, basically. Outside, like. Uh, any of these other things, like, I mean, we're, we're this, you know, the left hates the family. This is one of the reasons because the, the family is one of these things that, that you can, uh, you know, you lose your job, you can move back home. Uh, all these kinds of things. When you go there, they have to take you in. Yes. Yes. And, and you know, th- we're setting up this society of promising people that the society is going to do this. You don't need to be in a family. Um, you, yeah. we, 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 you know, we'll take care of you. We'll make your sandwiches. We'll get, we'll, uh, you, work maybe you maybe don't even need to work but you know they often will even promise we'll get you to work uh you know the, the we'll, we'll have the public transportation we're going to do everything for you this is like um you could re- sorry, good. well i remember you and i we when 
a lot of stuff happened in like the 2011, 2012, like when this cultural turning really started churning out. And I remember vividly, we would, we would look at these like Reddit, you know, the, the, the Reddit and forum things where people were talking about radical politics. And there was this weird shift that happened in it. And we would comment about it to each other where people would be like, yeah, if your family, you know, if they're Republicans or they're right wing or whatever, you should just completely remove them from your life. And like your new family is going to be like, they didn't say this, but like the, the, the implication was you should get rid of your mom and dad and you can replace them with people from your uh, BDSM Reddit forum, right? You're going to replace them with these people or, or society will take the society in quotes will take the place of your, of your, your, your entire, your family is going to be everybody. It's going to be the democratic party. It's going to be whatever, but like that, that doesn't, it doesn't work. There's that, that's a false bill of sale because they're not going to do that. They're not going to do any of that crap for you. You're just going to be completely atomized. But I really remember when this, this picked up speed and I don't think, <sighs> Maybe the most radical people would have said that in 2005, right? Like a person who was like a, you know, big time indie media. I'm a, I'm a literal communist before everybody who worked at CNN was mm-hmm. claimed to be a socialist. Like they would have been like that, but regular people weren't. But increasingly you see, you see people behaving this way. And I feel like these two things are connected that like the idea that, there is going to be somebody who will look after you. Well, here's the sca- the scariest version of this that people don't talk about. But, okay, if you don't have kids, what's going to happen to you when you're 80 years old? Like the idea here is, oh, we're just going gonna to pay uh, somebody from Trinidad to take care of you, right? Or in, really? in, in, in Japan, they'll build a robot to take care of you. Yeah, and I mean, uh, okay, that, that that again, another thing that relies on this very specific type of Bingo. civilization. And if that changes five percent uh, to the bad, then the robot's gone, and you're, you know, you're you're going to be pooping yourself in a dark room. And, and I, I don't know. It, it's it to me, it, it's it's deeply unsettling. This this feel it. it the the traditional way to make fun of this would be like, oh, they're snowflakes. They think that daddy's going to take care of them. But like, no, the, the that is bad. But the real problem is, is that what happens if the state doesn't exist to to provide these things that have been promised? What if they, it becomes ten percent less able to do the things that it wants to do? What happens if the electric grid is fifteen percent? less powerful than they projected to be in 30 years when every car is now EV. What happens if there's not enough money to take care of every senior citizen who didn't have kids? Like what, what, what happens then? Like you, nobody on this earth, nobody on this earth is really obligated to, to do anything for you unless they're your blood relative. Like this, I mean, it just, to me, it seems like it seems crazy that we're not, this isn't like a major thing that people talk about and, and, and agonize over, right? And, and it is something I was thinking, yes, and, and it's very weird. And I think it has to do with exactly what you said, which is framing it as what if there is a future in which X that we take for granted is no longer the case because everybody to the left of you know, Donald Trump, basically, 
uh, or that's not fair. You know, everybody who's kind of in the middle or on the political left, all of their imaginative ability to be able to conceive of hard times in the future has been channeled to only what they call the climate crisis, right? They, they almost identify that as, as the same thing. And so their attention has so been focused on that. And they say, okay, well, what's our solution for that is we'll build a bunch of windmills and, and, and we'll deal with it that way. That it has sucked up all the mental oxygen for maybe two thirds of the country to think about the other aspects of it, the social aspect, the human aspect, uh, uh, the, the familial aspect or whatever. And that's a very big distorting, which seems new. In earlier generations, earlier decades, it seems like people who would be on either side of whatever political spectrum would be concerned about the kind of things you're talking about. And the the critiques of consumerism and materialism and loneliness and atomization and all of that, that used to be a left-wing thing. And sometime in the last, I think you're right, five to 15 years, it has become only the province, really, of the dissident right or, or, or traditional religious people. And it leaves this huge void. And I don't think that's because everybody who's, you know, to the left of, of Tulsi Gabbard or whatever woke up and decided to become a heartless person someday. I, I, I think it's much more insidious than that. It's not a question of just individual defects or character or whatever. It's something about the weird turns they've taken. And to me, I have trouble thinking about it, anything other than imminently bound up in this energy stuff and this climate crisis stuff. Let me give a concrete example here. It's going to be quick. Uh, I had somebody, somebody in my family who lived through the Civil War. I was reading something he wrote about it. He said that when he got back home after the war, that people no longer did Sunday school classes. People stopped going to church even. People just stopped doing things at all, social things altogether. He said when he got back, it was like everybody was a zombie. He didn't say zombie, but like, you know, like they were, they were socially dead. But there was something that was broken and they no longer had the same community that they had, that he had seen four years earlier when he went off the war. And gradually things were, you know, gradually people got back. They, they, they came out of their shells and they, came back together and they start, you know, they started going through the, the motions of like, yeah, we're going to have Sunday school. We're going to do all these things. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to begin to live again. And this is like, this is a hard, like the, the civil war is a horrible dislocation for them. And obviously people had their property destroyed. People had their lives, they had their lives taken. They lost their children, their brothers, their husbands. We, 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 we understand this part, but they recovered from it pretty quickly considering the level of devastation. Right. This was something that you could expect to happen in in the past in modern like in modern wars even even in like you know places like Germany or Japan who had you know they had their their societies restructured around them but even that you had even with that you had these things you could fall back on you had religion you had family these things that were backstops so that no matter what happens with the you know Maybe the maybe the water the electricity is going to be out the water is going to stop running, but we still have this stuff here behind us. Like we we know how we know we have a vision of how we could live. The pro, the big problem with the total state. Shout out to Oren. For, for the, I love that concept. The problem with that is is if they ever succeed and they do manage to impose it manages to impose itself on every aspect of your life, that means that. When the state becomes sclerotic, 
when it becomes unable to do things for people that you're going to fall, you could fall back to a level of lower development and unpleasantness that we couldn't even conceive after World War II, after the Civil War, after the worst wars, because you're, you're starting from year zero because all the things that you would have backstopped this with will be gone and replaced with this thing that doesn't care about you, has no reason to exist to parasitically you know, can consume your, your, your efforts and your labor, your, your um, oh, maybe your life. This is a totally different thing than, Oh, well, I guess, the, I guess we're, we're not, a, we're not a, a, a monarchy anymore. Now we're a democracy. It's a totally different ball game. I'm not saying that's going to happen because no one can predict the future, but that is the, to me, the most legitimately scary idea. And it, you could, you can merge this in with the, the basic problem of like energy. We, we have over the last 200, 300 years, we have changed human beings like on a, maybe not biological level, but psychological level, we're not the same thing that we were in 1750. We just can't envision a world where you don't have fossil fuels. If we ever do reach peak peak fuel, whatever, and we had to revert to previous levels of energy consumption, uh, that will be a catastrophe that we have not seen for hundreds of years there's a, there's a book about the middle ages called a world lit only by fire and that's that i think captures what you're talking about well it's it's like it, it is it's like another planet the black death was probably the the, the most recent example of like what, what this could be like you mentioned it earlier when you know when 30 to 40 percent of the people in an area died like it, that changed those people for the changed the people who survived. They weren't the same kind of people that, that lived before. And if, if you, there's been a lot of great, great books about the black death, but if you read the accounts of people who were literate, they, you might, you biologically survived, but you didn't psychologically survive. They were changed forever. They were, they went from people who were like, you know, normal, not necessarily happy go lucky, but normal people to just, grim survivors of, of, of a catastrophe. And, you know, have you heard this about the Chinese that went through the, uh, yeah. So supposedly there's this, the age the the Chinese, the older Chinese people who went through the, uh, the cultural revolution, they're like, they're, they're like kind of crazy people. Um, they're like very aggressive and, and like, these are like all, all these like current Chinese people's parents and like their explanation is, well, you had to be, uh, you had to be a a Wolverine to to survive. Then you had to to fight and steal and get any do anything to get bread. Um, but yeah, sorry. Continue. No, China's China's China is like the reason why you. I don't I don't think this would be uh, the end of humanity, but it would just be it would be end to Western civilization. I mean, like the Chinese yeah, have gone through what, this multiple times. What you're describing, Mark, would be maybe as big a change as not the industrial revolution, but the agricultural revolution, so-called or Neolithic revolution back, you know, 8,000, 10,000 years ago or whatever, where people started doing agriculture and living together in big groups. You're talking yeah, about well, a shift, which is probably even bigger than the Roman versus modern stuff we were talking about last time. 
Yeah. Well, I, I, I think he's right. I mean, so <clears throat> there's a, um, uh, there's a, uh, one of my favorite uh, quotes is from a, a band, Taking Back Sunday. Just kind of funny to quote them because they're, they're, they're kind of considered low class. But uh, the quote, he says this. Well, I'll just say it. I'll just say it. I need you defenseless, dependent, and alone. This is what the Democrat Party wants. This is why they hate families. I mean, we you get in these the, uh, we've getting these debates with these people about family, and like you know, some of them know what they're doing, and some of them don't. But like you know, they'll be like arguing, well, you know, why why would you do the um why would you do the nuclear family? You could live like a like a Roman aristocrat with all your 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 aunts and you know and, and cousins like doing your laundry on on your grand estate. You know, they they make it sound like this is what they're arguing for, but of course it's not. They they want they want people the they. They want people dependent and, and defenseless and to have to rely on them because otherwise you don't need them. You know, I don't like uh, uh, unless Obama can like, you know, tax me or something. I don't need him. There's nothing he can really do positive for me, uh, you know, uh, other than other than extract for me. And this thing, this thing, you know, I like to talk about material politics like uh, and I, it doesn't mean I think that it's the only thing that, that matters, but it's, it's the only thing I can like interface with. Right. So like um I can give somebody a hundred dollars. I can't give them a family, uh, but the family is very important. It might, it, it's more important. And see this, this, you know, this, like, uh, I talk about people, you know, uh, I was debating someone like in the past week or something, they were talking about like, Oh, you know, this is, this is a social construct or something, you know, pair bonding or something, or, uh, you know, they're talking about all the, the, the why this is like, so, uh, you know, in this high and mighty thing. And it's like, like there are there are reptiles that 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 pair bond for life. I mean, you, you, which is essentially marriage. Uh, like this this is this is very very primitive. This is something that's like. By the way, Fran Drescher, if you're listening, he can give you a family. <laughs> yeah, uh, but you know th- this 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 thing like um you know you talk about like well all of a sudden you know people instead of working on farms they work in a factory in a city that's a big change. Look at the marriage rate. So, you know, there's, there's two ways this goes. There's one way that's like, well, um, and not by the way, not even just like, uh, so there are a lot of these people having kids, but, uh, they don't know who their daddy is. They're going to be weird people. They're going to be, uh, <laughs> it's going to be very, very strange. Uh, now, but all these other people that are, that are sort of not pair bonding or they're, they go to the abortion clinic or the, they're on the pill or something like this goes one way or the other, like either all of these people sort of reset themselves out of the cycle and, where we have the 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 Amish Reich, or we're about to get really weird, weird in a way like I don't think you know Romans couldn't have imagined. Like if you mm-hmm. showed them a spaceship, they could imagine a spaceship. They could mm-hmm. not imagine a life without pair bonding. Well, you know we we've we've talked about this for a while. It took, it took I think over the course of this podcast, you could probably if you listen to every episode, you could you could see us learning about like what role does this this the modern state have for people and you know people helped us fill in the blanks like malcolm explaining you know how you could farm immigrants for 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 money and, and like you can really that's kind of what the state wants to do for us right it, it's farming it's farming us some of, some of us are harvested for like tax money some of us are harvested just you know, as somebody to manage, to give, to create jobs for, for people in the coalition. But the point is you are like an asset of the state in the total state. That's just how it is. You are part of the human capital of, of the state. Well, let me, the, the, let me lucky, say some the, of these liberals out there, like if you don't know, like I'm sure there's some of these people that don't realize what, what they're doing and where this is headed. 
you know, like, oh, well, we'll just have more programs. We'll have the public transportation. We'll have the soup kitchen and stuff. And well, you don't need a family. A family could could um, be homophobic or something. We'll take care of you. You guys need to wake up. Like, even if this did work, look at that. Look at that. You see the city council meeting they had in, in Los Angeles? Oh, yeah. None yeah. Of, this isn't going to be a situation where there's the the rich white people and they feel bad for the poor, the poor black people, whatever. These are all going to be people that see themselves as just like, uh, you know, what is it in? What is it in Lebanon? They're, they're whatever the, the the Muslim and the Christian. This isn't like that. These people are they ain't going to take care of each other. They're going to people need to wake up. Well, and even if even if you could make the system work and the state can balance that tightrope, the problem here is like if if you're being farmed, if you're being farmed, right? If you're if you're capital, what do you do when there's when there's downtimes on the farm? You maybe you had a maybe you had a dairy cow that becomes dinner, like this is what's or or you know your your, your chick you know your chickens you, they become chicken salad instead of laying eggs. And like this is the problem. If you're an asset, you can eventually you'll become unproductive. You'll become useless to them, and you then you have to be discarded at that point. And you know the I, I know I, I I don't understand how people don't see this coming. Like if the the state like their job is to manage like to manage you right you you're paying people to to you know wipe wipe some old person's butt in the nursing home that's fine but this is all contingent on like the the economic realities if tomorrow they decided it was more economically viable to euthanize you they do that and like we don't that's not even hypothetical anymore they're already encouraging people in Canada to to kill themselves who were just just people who are depressed. Like they're just, they're, they're screwed up people and they're being encouraged to, to be euthanized because you don't, what purpose do you serve? Is it right? And this, this is, this is the, the only out, the only possible outcome in the end. Are people surplus now? Are the vast majority of people not an asset to be farmed, but an annoyance for, from the, perspective of the constant theological driven evolution of, of the machine. And, and probably yes, there's a, a Kurt Vonnegut's very first novel player piano is exactly that premise. He wrote it. in I think the early, maybe mid fifties and he's looking forward to an automated world and it uses the metaphor of the player piano, right? You have a really good player, uh, piano player, play a song and you record it and then you don't need the piano player anymore. And so in this future, 90 plus percent of the population of the United States is you know, unemployed and living on welfare. And and, and the plot is um, they start a, a ghost shirt rebellion. You know, the, all of the unemployed chuds that are just being fed you know, pearl food, uh, they rebel and, and they mass and they sort of wear these shirts and do a dance. I don't know if he literally does that, but he's cribbing off of the Indian, you know, ghost shirt, one final hurrah movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't. The spoiler alert, it doesn't go very well for them. They get they get they get chewed up. Uh, but that th- th- this idea of surplus is, is and downsizing is a frightening one. One of Vonnegut's latest book later books has a solution to some of the stuff you were talking about, about the loss of family, the loss of any kind of organic social and family connections. That book is slapstick, I think, and in the gimmick of that. Uh, it's it's narrated by a president, and he one of the ways he fixes America's crisis of atomization is he just gives people new fake families. 
He gives everybody a new <laughs> he gives everybody a new middle name and a number. So like my you know uh, my name would be Claudius Wombat Twelve Smith, and that would mean that I'm a member of the Wombat Tribe and the twelfth branch of it. And just everybody else who's a Wombat Twelve is my real tight buddy across the country now. And everybody who's a Wombat Five were like cousins. It seems like a nuts idea, but that's kind of what Solon did in the late 500s BC to fix the crisis that Athens was having. Athens was having uh, the Attic Peninsula and, and the broader Athenian society was having a, you know, slow rolling civil war. And he created new fake tribes and he mixed it up. So you'd have a little bit of the rich people down by the port. You'd have a little bit of the landowners and you have a little bit of the chuds up in the hills in each one. And it seemed to work decently for at least a couple of generations in its good aspects that's what the internet promised to be and and you guys are old enough to remember the original internet mm-hmm. enthusiasm of chat rooms the idea was oh great i you know everybody who's into mr bean or whatever i can be buddies with them all across the country now but 20 30 years later i don't know if it feels like that promise is really borne out it's funny they even they they attacked all that stuff like uh there were very very tight communities that would like raise money for each other when they got sick. And I'm talking about like the old, really old stuff, like Mm -hmm. Trekkies and stuff Mm -hmm, like that. mm -hmm. Now that was all now mediated by like, hi, I'm a Buzzfeed reporter. The community is, is homophobic or whatever. And it just, they they destroyed all those knitting. Yeah. The knitting, the knitting guys back in 1415 got, got taken to the cleaner. I think there's an important distinction here too. Like from, I guess the beginning of human civilization until very, very recently, the, the, the relationship with the state, the state would farm, like the state might literally, if you were a, a hella in Sparta, they would, you'd be literally farming for them, whatever. Otherwise they're just, they're extracting, they're extracting money or labor from you. Like, you know, they're either paying your tax in kind, you're paying them wheat or you're paying them gold, but you're paying them your labor. The, the state, like the, the 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 state, provides security to you, and you give them your and you give them labor in exchange. Like it's you know, that's the nice way of putting it. The other way of putting it is a protection racket. But we, we are all familiar with this. This is how human. This is what human society has always been, in, in pretty much every iteration, except for now. I'm not sure that we are we are recognizably human in our relationship with the state today, which. Like right now, we're kind of running an experiment, which is, can you have people who are, that's a bad way of putting it. There are people who their value to the state is a, a non-productive resource to be managed. You're paying other other people to, to manage them. This this is this creates fake work that people can that that you know will allow people to have jobs, and we're going to pay for part for this by you know printing money like making fake money or just you know there was a a great meme a long time ago which was like in the future the economy just could be everybody's gonna be paying each other for an uber ride like that's just the way everybody's job is gonna be driving uh, each other around like alternating back and that's that is kind of the direction that we're heading right that there's 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 no there's no way this could could be sustainable in any there's that one Marx line, right? Marx doesn't normally describe what his future world is going to look like. And the closest, it's either him or Engels, the closest they come is they say, we don't want this Eloy's Morlocks uh, 
you know, bougie worker dichotomy. In the future, a man should, you know, milk a cow in the morning and then go fishing in the afternoon and do a little writing in the evening. Well, the problem is, what if you leave that first part out, right? You, 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 you know, if no one's growing the food, smelting the metal, milking the cow, that's the society full of grasshoppers like we talked about last time. And it, I mean, it, it, I wonder. Yeah, we're all grass. I mean, this is just be honest. I mean, I mean, we're not all. I'm a grasshopper. Like I, I don't. Oh, uh, Mark, I, I, I have this I, image of you in my head as this Heinlein's guy who can do all seventy-five things that could be totally self-contained. Are you telling me that's a lie? <laughs> yeah, what's well, like if 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 things got really bad tomorrow, like I'm, I don't have a a, a a basement full of MREs and stuff. Like we're all kind of grasshoppers. Mm. Just by, not everybody. We have but a I division think, of labor. I mean, but uh, are you useful? No, that's not what I mean. It's not the, a matter of being useful, but like the like preparedness, like of being a, a self self sufficient. And I know I'm not that. <laughs> I mean the. Who, uh, there are very few people probably who actually are, you know, I, I, I just, I really think that I, it, I don't, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's just me. I've got two other things I want to talk about before we get done. Uh, one thing is, uh, this is maybe pretty easier, but it's, it's got to do with the energy thing is, um, are we going to like, you know, we were talking about, li- you know, living a world with more expensive energy, maybe even uh, very, very little energy is it looks like we're going to see this some extent in in europe this winter i mean i i they were talking about some of these these pubs in in yep. england some of them you know uh, a lot of them it's just not going to make you know these pubs are like uh, they're just not like a uh people kind of hang out there and stuff they're, it's not like a big they're not there's not a big turnover place like a fast food restaurant or whatever and but you know one of the, some of them predate yes uh electricity some of them are literally so, hundreds and hundreds yeah. of years old yeah are we going to see like a, do you have any, like, do we going to see like a future of anything and, and uh, how bad do you think it's going to be in, in, uh, this, the, this winter is the, just the law going, I, I don't know. Just any, anything interesting, interesting that you have on this, a world historic event we're possibly going to have, uh, this winter. Yeah. I mean. You know, all I know about is what I read in the papers, but I, I do say even the people who are saying that the fear of the energy crunch in Europe this winter is overblown, even the people who are downplaying it, you notice the reasons that they're giving. It's like, well, we have 90 percent of what we need. This is like evil Knievel jumping over a canyon and they better be damn sure that they're going to land two feet past the rim of that canyon rather than two feet short of it. And I don't know. I'm not in the complete doom prediction, but I'm kind of worried. Gotcha. Uh, let me see. Uh, the other, the other thing. Um, I mean, I don't know how it's tied in this with the other stuff, but it's 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 the most um, the euthanasia thing in the Netherlands. Uh, if you go, if you look on the Onion before they sold it, right before they sold it, they had this great YouTube. They made all these great YouTube videos and there was this, uh, it's a, it's a joke video. And this is like 2012. This is, this is a joke where, um, the, the idea of the joke is these parents have their, their, te- their 13 year old teenage daughter euthanized because, uh, the parents of 13 year old Caitlin Taggart have d- decided to end her life saying she can now do nothing but lay on the couch and whine about things being gay. 
That's also another <laughs> thing that you wouldn't have in 2022. But uh, brain dead teeth only capable of rolling eyes and texting to be euthanized. Uh, and it's it, it's funny. <laughs> there's a there's like a doctor, and he says that like um uh you know when she uh when she tells her parents to get out of her room, that is just sort of random spasms of of her lips and stuff uh, because she's actually brain dead. <laughs> but uh, okay, are the Dutch just gonna kill uh, uh, uh euthanize? teenage girls that are depressed now is this like uh you know going back to the the family thing like um is this totally out of bounds is this something people were doing in the in the in the the 40s or the 60s like what the hell is going on with this i have seen this same trend i know exactly i think i know exactly what you're talking about and on the one hand all right i'll give the optimistic case first the optimistic case is you started from zero of this so it's going to look like it's drifting in this direction if you get any of it. You see what I'm saying? Just like like that there's a there's a if you're starting from zero, then it's a five thousand percent increase, even if it's still not that big a problem overall. That's always the cope explanation given for people who are worried about a slippery slope or, or, or a big new bad thing is, oh, well, you're just noting this because it's new. Uh, I, I you know, the, the cope version would like to say fundamental human nature is such that you will never see. Uh, suicide booths or, or whatever it is, you, you know, be, be, being being that widespread. But a lot of the other stuff we've been talking about over the last three hours suggests that some pretty big changes have happened and are happening in the in human arrangements. So yeah, no, I think you could. I think this could be a trend. I think it could catch on. I think I'd like to think that the United States culture will be much more resistant to it than Europe and Canada have been so far. I will bet you money that Latin America will be much more resistant to it than even the United States is. And so if there's, like on a lot of other issues, if there's hope, maybe it lies in Latin America. Is is this, like, I, 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 if they told us this about Japan, like I know that Japan supposedly has the centuries-old thing of like, if you're dishonored, then it's okay, then you should commit suicide or whatever, which is like, that's like okay. They have this very specific thing. Like, um, uh, what, the Romans had that too. Uh, did they? Yeah. Like if, if if you if you if you screwed up bad enough, yeah, you had to kill you, you kill yourself and your family. And it was you could. It was a way to avoid prescription, right, Mark? That if you if you yeah. if you if if you save them the trouble of having to actually prescribe and execute you, then it increased the chances your son or your wife could keep your stuff. Well, that, that that sounds like uh, you know they they mailed um, Rommel a pistol and mm-hmm. said you know you, you do it and we'll and we you, you will your family will still be taken care of. Yeah, that is different than what you're saying, like the, the Harry Carey. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Um, I mean, I, I think that a there are no bounds anymore. We know this, and b I don't agree with what Claudia said about you know hope from Latin America. Like this, there's hope. There's hope from America. What's going to happen is the people who adopt this new religion are going to be extremely susceptible to this because it's a materialist religion, blah, blah. I don't need to go over all that again. It's their materialist religion. This is their stuff to begin with. They'll be lining up to kill themselves. <laughs> you know, they'll be the people doing that. If you don't subscribe to this religion, if you still are, you know, Christian, whatever, you're not going to do this because it's, it's a sin to do this. And you just, mm. it's not, it doesn't follow the, the the any of the doctrines of your of your upbringing. You're not going to do that. So this is going to be like a self-correcting okay. problem. That's right. I mean, and I've seen a lot of people say that that if you have a kind of openly anti-natalist 
force now, then that can't last long unless it recruits. Uh, that's I like they that. can recruit is the problem. I, well, yeah. Right, but I like I like that. That's the most optimal. I mean, this is the Amish. This is why Bog, especially, is always pointing to the Amish. Like, don't don't sleep on the Amish. They may be the dark horse to inherit the earth. Well, the the, the <laughs> here's the thing: if if you have this materialist religion that doesn't is not very good at reproducing itself, it, it has to recruit people, and you you do that through like this university system, which or public and public education. Uh, that means if somebody blows up the university system and the public education system, it's like blowing up the queen's eggs and aliens. Like it, 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 it is hashtag over mm. if somebody does that, which is one of the reasons why they squeal so loudly whenever, like when the, when these school things come up, because like they know, yeah, you got, they got to have, you know, you got to be feeding the, the kids mealworms in preschool for this to work. If it, otherwise organically, they're not going to just come to this crap. But now that, that this is, let me just uh, a black pill too. Earlier, you were talking about the agricultural revolution. I'm sure there were a lot of people who who said like, "Wow, being a these people who are becoming uh, farmers, like you know, their bones are shorter, they're unhealthy, they're they're getting sick, they're getting diseases. We hunter gatherers are a lot healthier and happier. There's no way this is going to last. Well, it can last. Like the enclosures can last. You can be forced into the cities and, and, and things can change for the worse permits. So I'm not saying yeah. it's impossible. Or the nobles in but, France in the mid part of the 1700s probably looked down on all the lawyers and whatever in the cities. Well, that, that changed in a hurry. Yeah, exactly. You know, this, this, this is kind of out, out of left field, but this reminded me we were talking about this, this highly managed society and stuff. Because, like, you know, when I see a story, like, I don't know if you saw, they, they um, well, first off, they said that they, they don't release statistics on this. So we'll never really know how many people they kill. But we do know that um, there was a girl and the story was so like she was at the she was at the airport at the same time that there was a terrorist attack. She was like not even what didn't blow her up or she I don't think it I don't even know if she could see it. Just, just she was not physically harmed by emotional PTSD, basically. Right. Right. And her parents, everybody's like, oh, yeah, yeah, uh, you know, put her down, whatever. The part that, that sort of like that is next level is that, see, like, I think right now, or definitely like if you go to the 70s, something like this just doesn't cross the desk of a politician. Like, uh, like let's say you're the worst politician in the world. Well, you know, this, this whatever's going on here, you know, snuffing out a 12 year old. That doesn't like make you richer, let you steal more money, or you know what I'm saying? Like, like yeah, where, where, where old political model was so bound up in you know the political economy and what the unions are doing and what the stuff's coming from. Now it has migrated and taken over the emotional. You, you've had all these new professions, these new disciplines, these new NGOs. The, the system is much more integrated on that side of it in a way that other than prohibition temperance campaigns or whatever, it really just wasn't a political thing, the equivalent issue 125 years ago. And it is now. And when they said the personal was political, it was, a, it was a, a mission. It was a goal, right? It was, it was an aspiration and that's what we're living. In. Right. This, this reminds like, uh, maybe this is like, uh, you know, San Francis, like the high end level of the managerialism, but like, you know, it reminds me. So this kind of thing, it's like, you know, in my mind, I'm betting that whoever these politicians making these decisions, they probably live in one of these like, um, you know, zero percent corruption 
you know, almost like the Scandinavian thing. Like, you know, as can a Scandinavian politician like loot money from the government? I don't know. It's probably very unlikely. You have to ask so Marcus. You, you, ask Marcus. <laughs> yeah. So you get the situation where it's like the new Lord of the Rings film. They're not selling DVDs. They're not, um, and so and they're not going to release how many people click the button to watch it. So. Like, is it good? Is it bad? Like, that that has no really that has whether or not like uh, there's any demand for or people like it or they don't like it. That just has zero interaction with like the the people who are involved with making this. They don't need to make money, so like their you know their individual desires. Well, how do I feel about uh, you know euthanasia and stuff like that? Just their, their immediate emotions. Maybe the last conversation they had. Maybe they read a book or something. But this just has it's just free loading. And I think that's why at the beginning of this current awakening, awakening, go back eight years, people said, ah, this is just college kids. And they mm-hmm. were wrong, but they were wrong in a way they would have been right. You know, in the late 80s, early 90s, the first big wave of PC, that wasn't just college kids, but it didn't it didn't fully escape from the containment unit. It didn't fully gain traction. It went into remission. Something has kept changing. It's exactly what you're saying, Bog. These are not issues that a politician would just, you know, one way or the other. It just wouldn't. It's not their job. They, they, they're busy doing other stuff. That that full connection of all of those wires seems to have happened in a final way, sometimes between 1990s and now. I mean, they've become, in terms of of managing their citizens, they've become more powerful. They've become better at managing your managing people's thoughts. Before, in the in the nineties, they didn't have social media. They didn't have the, this is the the double edged sword of the of sort of the internet. It's that yeah, we can communicate with each other and spread ideas, but also it means the the person with the loudest megaphone is going to be able to spread their ideas the, the 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 best. And like this is why if you go on Twitter, you'll see a million blue wave psychos who have just like the same received opinion as everybody else. They just, they were, they, 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 they listen to the megaphone. And now that that's just, that's their life. So those people are a lot easier to manage and it, it made it so you can have this radical element be on the same, like on the same page on everything. This is, this is definitely a new development. Like, like left wing cranks and I mean, right wing too, but the thing is right wing, Cranks don't have any power, so nobody cares. Like left wing cranks in the nineties, they were really varied. They had different yeah. weird things they were into. Well, it's like it's like the Sierra Club. It's like the Sierra Club immigration thing. Not everything, but fully aligned yet. Yes, exactly. But now there is there is one message, and that's I think that is one of the things that happened in the interim, and probably and, and there's probably a lot of different things. But yeah, and the, the, the thing was like it's just college kids. That's true. However, if the university system functions as the the temple of your society, then it's just what they're saying in college means it's just what your leaders are telling you. We, we haven't had a president without a college degree since Harry Truman. So, you know, the, the, the saying is just college kids with it was eating goldfish in the <laughs> 1920s. Yeah, that was just college kids. <laughs> Every, everything is downstream from maybe not the faculty lounge, but the student lounge now. Let's bring this home because uh, we're we're at we're at three hours. I want to ask you. This is a super quick question. You're a very well read, very educated guy. Uh, I wanted to uh, wanted to ask you. Tell our listeners if you could recommend one book for, for people to read. What would it be? 
just of any kind? Any whatever you want. Oh. Uh whew. uh of any kind whatsoever. Well, I've never anything you want to say. I, I've never published a book, so I won't. I won't. <laughs> I, I I can't show my own stuff. Uh, I would say if you're at all interested in the kind of stuff we've been talking about, and that these guys tend to talk about, uh, but this energy and civilization sounds a bit a bit too far because it's you know calculating the kilojoules from a water mill or whatever. Then <laughs> then uh then a then another version of it might be a book called The Substance of Civilization by a man named Sass, S-A-S-S. And he goes through chapter by chapter uh, with materials, different materials in human history. So the first one's stone, and then bronze, and then iron, and all the way up to to silicon. And he explains in very plain terms sort of, you know, how hot you had to get the coals in order to make iron versus bronze. So if you've ever sort of played the game Civilization, or if you otherwise think about these grand sweep of things and how we got to where we are, all the great toys we have. Uh, this is which one of the, it's, it's well-written, it's engaging, and it's just uh, uh, one of my favorite sort of history books and that combines history with this other way that we like thinking of it. So I would I would recommend that and uh, and Mere Christianity for anybody who hadn't read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. I, I got a cheat and pick too. Excellent. Yeah. So uh, uh, that was great. A lot of chew on. I know last time people said they, they listened to the last one a couple of times. It was a, a big hit. Great guest. Uh, glad to have you. We'll we maybe get you back um, in our one of our uh, we're going to do a, a Christmas special, something like that. So oh, we'd love to. And we'll have, you know, it's we've been talking a lot this time and last time about black pill, white pill, doomer, cope. Uh, I am still I still have enough faith in the system to believe that we have an up. We will have a mark in three weeks as to just how doomery or optimistic we can feel. <laughs> and uh, so we'll have a lot to talk about. Uh, yeah. I, um, uh, I mean, I, I, I've, I've, I feel, I feel white pilled, happy, all this kind of stuff, all the, like, uh, you know, as much as anti uh, technology we could be, uh, let's be real. This is, this is, this is something of a democracy that you, this is something of uh, a place where uh, the media, media matters. And, uh, uh, I, I got my own radio station. Um, I know people that that uh, uh, able they're putting their thoughts in newspapers, and they, they wouldn't have been able to before. Uh, you know, thirty, forty years ago, these people would have had to uh, put their. I would have had to put my thoughts under people's um, uh, uh, windshield wiper <laughs> or let, angry letter to the editor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. When people talk about being able to see the system, uh, you know, the system coming like there was no like what we. How would you be a dissident in the nineteen thirties? Uh, you know, good luck. From my understanding, like there was like the only real dissonant stuff there was was like was written in foreign language. There, you know, there were anti-war stuff written in the Yiddish Yiddish language. Because how else the hell else would you been able to do it? Yes, and they and they kicked them uh, Wilson and and uh, Palmer and I guess Hoover was a little young for this. They kicked them all out in the First yeah. World War. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it, it's um, uh, it's gonna be crazy, but uh, it, it'll be fine. But uh, thanks. Love it. It's all gonna work out. Making their way the only way they know how. Let's just.